This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 734, A Conversation with Ron Friends. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is Adam Chapman, your host, and this is our conversation with Ron Friends. Or really, I should say, this is the third episode where I've had the uh, the absolute pleasure to sit down and speak with Ron Friends about his career. Uh, now, this is an interesting ish- uh, episode because uh, it's actually quite long. It's about two and a half hours long. Um, we had a great conversation, and I, I just I always love having Ron on. What's interesting about this one is that we're a little bit more focused uh, in terms of the last few years of Ron's um, development in terms of what he's been putting out into the world. Uh, so specifically, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, a recent one, two recent one shots that uh, Ron contributed stories to. One was uh, Spider-Man, uh, sorry, Sensational Spider-Man, I should say, Self Improvement, uh, which came out as part of the Marvel 80 Years Celebration, and also Thor: The Worthy. Um, so he contributed ten-page stories to both of these. Um, both of them, he was uh, partnered with his longtime collaborator, the legendary Tom DeFalco. And uh, you know, one is a, a Spider-Man story, and it's kind of a, an intimate story, and the other one is a Thunderstrike story which is set in and around the time of the original Thunderstrike run. Um, so we talked a lot of time really going deep on these two projects, um, how him and, T- him and Tom actually work together. Uh, we also talk about some of the variant covers he's done over the last couple of years. Uh, we talk about um, a backup story that he did in the Clone Conspiracy number one, uh, which is about three years ago. Um, and actually, I, I find I always learn something really new with, with Ron, and I really appreciate him talking and you know about things that have come up because my favorite part of doing any of these interviews is really finding out the creative process and seeing the the back and forth that exists behind the scenes or how certain decisions end up getting made so there's in, in particular there's one panel that i ask him about from uh clone conspiracy and just finding out how that panel was even put together or, or where the ideas came from was really interesting and illuminating to me because i wasn't sh- it was something that always meant something to me or i always loved a particular panel and i just thought it really resonated and was so strong and powerful and it was just really interesting to be able to find out more about uh, what kind of led to that and what was the kind of secret sauce behind the scenes anyways uh, we'll stop prattling on in just a moment but first I did want to uh, point out that if you want to listen to my first two conversations with the Ron friends uh, the first one is from episode 296 which was posted August 14th 2015 and uh, that's available on iTunes or through uh, the website comic shenanigans.podbean.com and you can also listen to the second episode which was in episode 408, um, which at the time I laughed. I laugh now because it was 112 episodes later, and I'm like, oh, it's been a while. And now it's been over 300 episodes. Uh, it's been a much, much longer now. Uh, so episode 408, this was originally posted September 17th, 2016. So I do recommend, uh, if you're interested, to check out those previous episodes and then come back and listen to this one. Because uh, this one, we talk less about, you know, again, his career on the whole and a little bit more focus on just the last few years. I do hope to eventually have him back on again. He's just a wonderful guest, so generous of his time and uh, there's um, I, I, some one of these days I would 
if I can uh, maybe convince him, and I don't think it would take a lot of convincing, but to get him to talk very deep, uh, maybe almost issue by issue commentary about A Next, which is a book I love uh, from the late 90s. I uh, hope to have him back someday to do that, as well as just to talk more about anything he wants to talk about because he's just that great a storyteller. Um, I did want to thank a few people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum for submitting questions. Didn't use all of them that they submitted, but I did try to use the, if not the exact questions, but uh, the similar questions. Uh, one was from uh, Frogoat for Spoo. That is a weird handle, but okay. Um, Mr. Raffles, uh, Kid Cage, and uh, I think Macabre. I think Macabre, I didn't really touch on um, their question, which was about influences, but I think we've kind of uh, handled that in the last two uh, episodes, as well as kind of mentions here about, you know, taking uh, influences from Kirby and from Ditko. And some of it's, sometimes it's more uh, project-based for him. At least that's what he said in the past. Anyways, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, you can rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without uh, any uh, further prattling on, after five minutes, I'm finally going to segue into the amazing conversation with the, uh, I, I'm not going to say legendary because that's already been co-opted by Tom DeFalco, but uh, you come up with a superlative and it definitely will apply to the outstanding Ron Friends. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be with you. So this is uh, your, actually your third visit. I was looking, and it's actually been th- about three years or so since I've had you on. I, I don't know how I've lived this long with have, having some more Ron friends in my life. It's really been three years? Something like that, yeah. My God. As you get older, it just, it, time just, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, I understand the math of it, that... Every year is less of a part of your life when you get older, you know, and it's less of a, a fraction of your life, but it just goes so fast. I, I never would have guessed it was three years since the last time we spoke. I actually would not have thought so either. So we first uh, actually spoke uh, August 2015, and our last one was uh, September 2016. And during that conversation, I remember remarking that, oh, it's been a while. And now I'm like, no, it's actually been a while now. It's been over three years. There you go. All right. Well, we got some time to make up for. Exactly. Well, uh, I feel like this has been a... I'm not sure I've done anything that interesting in the last three years, but uh, you, let's see if you think so. Well, I would, I would argue that this year, I mean, as part of the uh, the uh, Marvel's 80th anniversary, you've done a, a bunch of different projects. I mean, they've been, you know, 10 pagers, but they've been a lot of fun. You've been reunited with Tom DeFacco. So I'm, well, I feel like you guys are o- always together now as opposed to being apart. But um, so I'm curious, how did, how did these projects projects come across so first uh, the first one published this year was the the sensational spider-man self-improvement you did a, a 10-page story there with tom um how did that come about uh well they they called uh, i don't know exactly what the root of it all is i mean i've heard a couple of different things one i one thing i heard is that this was an initiative uh implemented by uh cb sabalski uh as far as involving some veteran creators in uh, in the 80th anniversary celebration, uh, such as it is, uh, so it's possible that the, uh, the that the credit goes to him. If indeed you see credit to be <laughs> to be assessed, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's just been a matter of getting emails, or either a phone call from Defoco or, or emails from an editor asking if I if, if I'm interested and. Uh, there, there were actually there was 
one one or two incidences that I was invited to participate in that I just was unable to because of the schedule. Uh, unfortunately, the way comics are produced these days, uh, some of these invitations are very last minute, and it's it's just becomes impossible to to fit them in. Uh, so there were two, at least two invitations to be involved in projects that I would have loved to have done, but the, the schedule just didn't work out at all. Um, but, uh, you know, the two that I was able to, to be involved with uh, were wonderful and a lot of fun. They were they went by way too quickly. Mm. But uh, but it's always a pleasure to work with the Falco and, and uh, hammer out an idea and, and help shape it, if nothing else. Uh, in both cases... It was very hand in glove. We we kind of fell back into the way we always uh, created together. You know, uh, somebody pitched an idea, and then the other guy builds on that, and it's a back and forth. It's a it's always a game of creative ping pong with mm-hmm. uh, with the Poco. Now, the, both stories were interesting because they were just 10 pagers. Now, I've talked to Tom before about how he likes to kind of flex the muscles in terms of using shorter formats, and that I think he joked before that he seems to be the only person still capable of writing a 10-page story. Um, so as, as the artist assigned to a 10-page story, do you approach it any differently or in terms of the collaboration between you two in terms of the pacing, or how do you approach it that might be different than your standard 20 or 22-page book? Um, I don't approach it any differently. Uh, it's... You know, it's it, it's because it's a density issue. You know, I, I don't have a, an issue. Uh, the, I mean, I came in in the '80s, so uh, and I, I I learned from the the illustrators of the '60s and '70s. So I don't have a problem with you know a three tier page and putting some real density into a story. And quite frankly, I, I I do agree. I probably have said it myself a few times that DeFalco, if not one of the only people that can do a really solid 10-page story. He's certainly somebody who enjoys the challenge and I think gets the most out of a 10-page story. Mm. Um, you know, Tom can get... I, I, I actually feel Tom and I have gotten some mileage out of five-page stories. You know, we, we did some five-page backups with Spider-Girl during Spider Island mm. that were chapters of a, of a larger story, but I think... Uh, you know, Tom's a, a very craft-oriented writer, and uh, you know, tell him what you want, and he will meet that parameter, and he will give you one heck of a story. Mm. And you know, so so yeah, you when you're crafting it, you are aware of your length, and you're aware of you know how it needs to kind of pace out and everything. So it's it's really it's it's no different because all of that is determined before I actually sit down to pencil it. You know? mm-hmm. Believe me, if I was sitting down to, to, to pencil a 15 or 20 page story and then somebody went, oh, you only have 10, <laughs> that would be a completely different thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and the only time, the closest that ever happened to us was with Thunderstrike. We thought we had more than 24 issues. At one point, we were supposed to have a double-sized 25th issue. And when that went away and they said no no you're ending at 24 we had to cut out a couple of B stories and uh, and kind of hustle to to get all the high points that we wanted to get in there in there but uh, mm. ultimately we did and we were happy with uh, with what we were able to present 
so with with the with the ten page Spidey the story that you did this year, um, it's interesting that you got to spend I, I guess at least just a few panels kind of doing uh, your best Ditko to kind of show the Spider Man's origin again. It's not the first time you've kind yeah. of been able to tell Spider Man's origin in kind of a Dickoish style. Do you, do you, do you get more out of kind of being able to kind of do a Ditko or uh, do you challenge yourself to kind of get it more true to that vision or how do you kind of approach something that stylistically is so you know exact and very particular? I copy. <laughs> I, pull, I pull out the Dicko reference and I copy. Um, yeah, I, the, one of the things that I was happy about in the course of it is when Tom and I, you know, if, if we have an opportunity to to uh, do any kind of a ten-page story with Spider, there's a couple of ways you can approach it. You can you can approach it as uh, doing a ten-page setup with a punchline, or you can approach it as well. We have ten pages. What would we like to say about the character? You know, what do we feel needs to be said? What do we feel hasn't been said lately? Uh, is there is there anything that we feel about the character that we don't feel has been represented recently? You know, things like that. And those are the kind of discussions we had. We had discussions about our friend Pete and where he stands right now and everything. And quite frankly, with that story, coming off of the stuff that had been going on in the main title, as far as he was, you know, he was running Parker Industries and he had kind of become Tony Stark Jr. and, and all this kind of stuff. We were very interested in pulling the, uh, you know, uh, pulling everything in and making it a more personal story, making it a smaller, personal, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man story because of how huge his stage had become for that period of time. And mm-hmm. now it was... You know, now his uh, his purview was was kind of uh, retracting back to what it was what it what it had been. So you know, it, 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 Peter is a character that, that that Tom and I have discussed at length. Uh, we know how each other feels about the character and uh, where uh, we feel his strengths are and everything. And I, I for me. Um, one of the, the, the things about Pete that, that a lot of people, I think, can, can sometimes lose, lose sight of is because, you know, at, at alternate times he's either dating and or married to a supermodel and has somebody in his life that is a confidant and everything. You know, I, I, when you're, even when you're in a very, very solid relationship with somebody, there are certain aspects of your life at different times that are only yours. And it's very possible for everybody out there that's ever been in a relationship to know that you can be very, very lonely in a relationship, Mm. even in a good relationship. And because of Pete being Spider-Man, I honestly feel he has a very deep loneliness. Um, because there are things about as much as Mary Jane is willing to listen and as much as she has been uh, a rock for him and you know we wrote them as a couple in Spider-Girl I mean I I think they're an incredibly solid couple I think Mary Jane's an uh, an incredibly strong woman Uh, but that doesn't mean Pete doesn't feel lonely in his own head Hmm. in his own heart at times because Mary Jane doesn't know what it feels like to be Spider-Man and where some of that loneliness comes from is the idea that we were trying to uh, to uh, to uh, 
feature to, to put a spotlight on in those 10 pages of the fact that Pete is a guy that is putting on that suit not just to take pictures of himself, but to make up for the biggest mistake of his life. You know, he made a really bad choice that cost him one of the most important people in his life. And it's hard for him, no matter how many people he saves, it's hard for him to forget that because the very reason he does it is that. Do you understand what I mean? Absolutely. And uh, so I think there's, I think there's a, a part of Pete that even when he's riding high, you know, I mean, a lot of people refer to him as a neurotic character that he overthinks things. But there is a, a sadness to him. There is a loneliness to him because that he, everything positive that has come from Spider-Man, all the lives he has saved, all the times he has saved New York, all the times he's even contributed to saving the galaxy or the universe or whatever, fighting Thanos or whatever, <laughs> for all of that, it all started with the death of Uncle Ben. It all started with him screwing up and having to spend the rest of his life trying to fix that, trying to, trying to make it not hurt so much, trying to make up for it. And we well, we were interested in telling a story. I mean, Tom was very. Tom came up with the initial idea of Pete meeting a character who does the right thing and still it goes south. Yeah. And you know, and and that you know, this kid had no power to make it right. The only thing he could do is try to do the right thing, and yet it still bit him on the ass and Tom was very interested in juxtaposing those two things and and it really tied into me and uh, to, to my thoughts about Pete and and that you know and, and the long dark moments before dawn with Pete I mean it, it still comes back around to that I mean we love fun loving Pete we started it with fun loving Pete you know uh, the, the, the 10 pages starts with Peter Parker being Spider-Man being, you know, enjoying it, saving lives, knowing that this is the greatest thing in the world, but he is very quickly drawn into this situation where he realizes, you know, that, uh, that, that this kind of stuff is happening to people every day. Tough choices are being made every day, and even when you make the right choice, it can, uh, it can go bad, and uh, he tries to do what he can to pull somebody back from the edge, which, you know, I think Pete is a character that functions very, very well in that person-to-person type of a dynamic. Mm -hmm. Well, I was really, I, I was really blown away by your your art in uh, on the second last page, in particular of this story, because of the the choices in terms of how you frame Spider Man. Like you have a shot of Spider Man, and as he's talking, you're you're getting tighter and tighter a close up, and then just on the bottom of the page, you have the reaction of the person he's talking to, and then kind of putting the gun down, and then having this beautiful shot, nice wordless, nothing happening, of just Spider Man just putting his arms around this kid, and it just it's extremely emotional and very effective. And it's just so brilliantly laid out, and you just really captured the moment without having to do a lot of flashy stuff. It's just so simple, but so effective. Well, thank you. Um, and that was very much a combination of, of Tom and myself, because the pulling in on Pete was something I did in the thumbnails. But I believe 
what I did on the second tier with the kid and the gun, I believe I pulled away from the kid. I started tight and pulled away from the kid. Mm. Um, but Tom, when he looked at the thumbnails, said, you know what, I would keep the camera away from the kid to show his isolation, to show his him feeling isolated and alone in that moment mm. that he's making the, the decision. And I thought that was a wonderful insight. So I kept the camera static on the kid. Uh, what I ended up doing was kind of spinning the camera as if the camera were coming around him so that we then pull in Pete. And then uh, when I was re-thumbnailing it that way, I, at one point, uh, Pete just had his hands on the kid's shoulders. And I said, you know what? I think Pete would, I think Pete would hug the kid. And I, <laughs> I called the Falco and got his voicemail. And I said, I got a quick question for you. Get back to me when you can. But I was penciling the job at that point. Mm-hmm. And I was sending pages off to Sal. So um, uh, Tom didn't get back to me until after the page was penciled and sent off. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, what was your question? And I said, my question was whether or not Pete would hug this kid or not. But it's too late. I, I decided he would, and he did. And unless you have a real problem with it, and we and we repencil it, it's going to go that way. And he went, I have no problem with that at all. I think that was a good call. So uh, it was very, you know, like I said, even a page like that is very much a back and forth between DeFalco and I, and, and hopefully the best of the two of us. For sure. No, the, the last page... I appreciate page. that. That's very nice. I, that, that's, see, Pete has to be, you know, it's something we used to call Eric Masterson, the everyman hmm. Avenger, you know? Yep. Uh, to me, that's what sets Peter Parker apart from the rest of the Marvel Universe, is, is his humanity, is, is, is that he is always Peter Parker in a goofy suit. <laughs> You know, he's there. He's never Spider-Man. You know, I mean, you can argue about, you can debate, you, you can have a good-natured, uh, honest debate about whether he's Clark Kent or Superman, hmm. or whether he's Bruce Wayne or Batman, or even whether he's Steve Rogers or Captain America. But you can But that debate is not. There isn't a Spider-Man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And uh, he, he's Pete, and uh, that's what I love about him. I mean, that's that's what I love about this character. So. On the final page, you do a little bit more of um, the kind of tight angles I really liked. Where at the, at the end of the page, where you have these three panels, and you have one of the kid walking away, and you just have the shot of Spider-Man, and then you push in a little tighter on the next one with just the kid asking him a question about, you know, does this guilt ever ever go away? And then the, the last shot is just a nice wordless again spot of you get so much emotion out of just Spider-Man's mask, and the and I guess the colorist really added a little depth there too in terms of with that uplight. Oh my gosh, yeah, the colors came through like. Crazy. Yeah, like it, he's he's masked, but he's not. You know what I mean? Like you get, it, it's it's a good talent to be able to get convey so much emotion on a masked character that you know exactly how he's feeling in that moment, and it was just breathtaking. Well, thank you. I mean, some of it is. I see. I it's not something that I consciously really do as much as. I mean, there are times when the angle on the face can help. You know. Uh, uh, communicate an emotion or communicate a, a, a feeling but for the most part I, I think it's because just as longtime comics readers I just think we're used to knowing that that's Spider-Man's face <laughs> you know I mean mm-hmm. I, I think it has as much to do with body attitude as anything 
Uh, because, you know, there are ways you can play with the eyes to, to communicate emotion, of course, you know, and you can, and Marvel even found a way to do it in the movies, which I thought was, was very clever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as much as we used to cheat uh, some of the eye expressions and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, in, in that case, I was just very interested in, uh, and again, you know, leaving Pete in that moment where he's reminded that he that this is something that's always there for him you know it's, this, this never goes away yeah. even though it's all these years ago and uh, you know it, it's part of his origin uh, we actually uh, I believe it was somebody on my Facebook page actually after it came out said that they were really hoping that we would do a news story and not just rehash his origin and and I went Wow. Okay. Well, I feel like that misses the point. There was a new character. There was a new. There was a new story going on there. Yes, and, but doesn't every Spider-Man story have his roots and his origin? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, to, to, to answer your your one of your earlier questions, I mean, you, when you do Spider-Man's origin, it was, it's always fun for me to go back to the original Ditko because it has been retold so many times. You know, it's been retold so many times, even in pop culture, that they didn't bother to do it in the last incarnation. You know, that kind of thing. Everybody knows the origin. Mm-hmm. But for me, with all the updates that have been made and with all the revisions that have been made, when I get a chance to, to do the origin, I try to keep it as true to the original did go as possible. In fact, it, on one of the shots, uh, I, I put the pencils up on my Facebook page. Uh, I did the reverse webbing on Spider-Man's mask in the shot where he's holding the, uh, I think it was on the shot where he's holding the, the, uh, the thief, you know, uh, at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Salpasup fixed it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. It was either the mask or it was on his main body, or on, you know, the, the webbing on his jet. It was something where I followed the Ditko religiously, even though, you know, it, it, it wasn't consistent from panel to panel. I, I, did the original Ditko and I did the original Ditko Spider and I did the original Ditko underarm webbing and all this because my attitude is Spider-Man has had a series of costumes over over the, the years that he's been Spider-Man and any any real noticeable differences between the original Ditko suit and the suit he's wearing now are because they're different suits you mm. know uh, I think there are a lot of guys I, I've worked with Ramita I've been fortunate enough to be inked by John Ramita and I, and I don't think John agrees with that and when I work with Sal Buscema he has shown once or twice that he doesn't agree with that either <laughs> he thinks Spider-Man's suit should always be consistent and who's to say who's right and who's wrong you know I guess I was going to say I guess, I guess practically if he's, if he's actually sewing them all himself they wouldn't all be the same no, but, but I mean, I'm even talking about something that Ditko would do where, you know, on uh, panel two, his mask webbing would go one direction, then on panel three, it would go the other direction, and then on panel four, it would be back to the other direction, you know, oh. that kind of thing. <laughs> and that's not something I could ever get Sal comfortable with, mm. you know, because just doing, just saying it's because Ditko did it, it doesn't fly. When I did The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man for Danny Fingeroth, and I, you know, remember keeping in mind that this was all pre-McFarlane, and I was doing the reverse webbing on his mask on one of the shots. Danny was very uncomfortable with it because at that point the standard was, and rightfully so, the standard was Ramita. Mm. And Ramita 
never did that, especially on the mask. He never did that. But to Danny's credit, he recognized it as being an homage to Ditko. He saw what I was trying to do overall with that story in trying to, trying to channel Ditko as much as possible, and he let it go through. And and uh, Mr. Terry Austin uh, inked it the way it was penciled, and, and everybody enjoyed it for what it was, which was an homage to Ditko. You know, so. I will but say... You don't always do that. Yeah, I, I will say the um, so again that that last page, that tenth page. So I actually do own that page now because I loved it so much. So I appreciate again you the did. art. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you. I appreciate that. Every time you put up like new art, I'm I'm hungry for. It's actually, I actually just bought a page today from your Thor the Worthy that we'll talk about in a second. Um, so I'm a bit. Well, I really appreciate that kind of support. That's a very that's a very tangible type of support that I very much appreciate. Thank you. It's very flattering. Thank you. Well, when this when this issue came out, so I I think you said that like oh there's a, a few pages up for sale, and I was on there as fast as humanly possible because uh, I was so excited about it. And I, I remember I actually spent like a day or two just being like I don't know even know which page I want. They're all so amazing. So my wife and I are actually ended up deciding on the on the last page, and a, a big part of it was what I just talked about with those last three panels and just the the naked emotion that you could get off the page without having any dialogue at all. Well, and, and and I I very much appreciate that, that you're that, that that's what you enjoy about it. I, it's one of the things that I I don't collect as much original art as I used to. I don't keep as much of my own original art as I used to because I don't like the fact that the the uh, copy's not on it anymore. The, mm. the dialogue's not on it anymore uh, because the kind of pages that I always kept from uh, even my own work were certain scenes, were certain character interactions, and without the, the dialogue balloons mm. and everything, that doesn't, that isn't represented as much, you know. So I find myself less attached to the original art now because it is just the production art. It's not the page itself, you know. Mm, gotcha. And uh, when I see stuff from the 60s and 70s where, the, you know, all the dialogue is hand-lettered on the boards and and even my early stuff that was hand-lettered on the boards, that, that's a completely different animal to me. That's, that's, then you're getting a part of the story. True. You know? Uh, so that's just my own personal take on it, but it, it's very flattering that you're, uh, that you're that tuned into the work, Adam. I really do appreciate that. And the other thing, too, is being that, that since I'm represented by Catskill and Sal's represented by Catskill, all the pages were in one place. Mm. And the same with the 10-page Thunderstrike. Keith Williams is also uh, represented by Catskill as well. So all the pages oh. are in one place. So. Well, uh, it's interesting. One thing I, I, I really appreciate about your art in particular is because you're such an amazing storyteller that even though we are, as you said, kind of losing the copy and it's not directly on the boards or anything like that and you're kind of losing that aspect, your stuff typically is so emotive that as much as you're losing it, it's still, you still have so much of it there. Like there's other artists at times where I feel like when you do take away that copy, you may not be able to follow it as well or it's just different. Um, but because like there's a page that you did for, I believe the spider girl story in spider Island from a few years ago. And there's a page with uh, her and stinger just, I think they're just sitting down. I can't remember exactly what's on the page. It's been a little while uh, since I've looked at it, but I own that page as well because again of the emotion in it and that even without having the dialogue, you can still understand what's happening. There's still a raw emotion coming off the page you still feel what these characters are feeling well that is the job description yeah uh, I mean that is my job and I I work very hard to this day I work very hard in, in trying to get better at it 
which is to be able to tell the story in pictures so that people still should be able to give, tell you what's going on. I mean, my my early issues were, I, I started working for Marvel while I still lived at home with my parents. And uh, I, I would use my, my uh, sainted mother, who has, uh, is no longer with us. When I would finish a sequence, I would show it to her, and she had no comics background whatsoever. She doesn't even read the form. You know, she, she would started reading it when I started working in it. But if she could tell me, well, these two are not happy with each other, and this guy is very angry about something, and now he's not, he doesn't want to hear anymore, and he's leaving the room, and uh, this person is uh, not happy with the way that conversation went. And, you know, when she could, if she could tell me that kind of thing, that, that general, uh, okay, you've successfully communicated, you know, what the characters are going through uh, before the dialogue is put in, then, uh, then I knew I did my job. And it was a wonderful laboratory for me to get better at it, you know, mm. because if she would look at it and, and not get it, then I would go back and keep working at it until she did. Hmm. One thing I really appreciated, I, uh, I'll move on from the Spider-Man story in a moment, but one thing I did really appreciate it about it, and it was actually something we talked about in our last conversation that not as many people do anymore, is that when you had, there's a few major points when you had Spider-Man moving and you had the silhouettes, you had kind of the action shots so you understood just how fast Spider-Man was moving to get away from gunfire or to move and save someone from falling off a building like I really love how you do that and integrate it because again it's, it's this beautiful flow of motion that uh, I, I just feel like it has been abandoned or you don't see as often anymore yeah it, it, that's a tough call I'm, I'm not as familiar with the work that's being done now so I always hesitate to make too much of a uh, of a statement about it, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's something that was always a part of the visual language that I learned, you know, uh, from from the different uh, artists. From Certainly it started with, with Ditko on Spider-Man and mm-hmm. all the way up through Ross Andrew and uh, and all the guys that came before me, you know. So it's, it's always been a part of the visual language of how Spider-Man moves and, and how to communicate that kind of speed. Um, yeah, that was one, one of my favorite bits in the story is, it, you know, as much as you, you work on Spider-Man for a few years and over several years and you, you kind of figure, well, you, you've pretty much gotten to do everything you wanted to do with Spider-Man. But there's always something. I mean, it, it, for me, a lot of these kinds of scenes, it's always like doing it for the first time. And I enjoyed the little sequence you're talking about where, you know, uh, the bad guy has a machine pistol and they're in an entryway. I mean, they're in a confined space. And he's got a, a you know, a, a fully automatic machine pistol and he still can't hit Spider-Man. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I would love to see that in a film, you know, I mean, just to show that's between his spider sense and his, and his reflexes, you cannot touch this guy if he doesn't want to be touched, you know. Okay. So I, that, that was a lot of fun to... Uh, to execute. I, I enjoyed that sequence a lot. So moving on to the uh, Thor, the Thor story you got, you and Tom did. So again, it's it's that dream team uh, who worked on Thor for so long. Was it always kind of a given from the minute they even called you guys that you're going to do a Thunderstrike story, or is that something that came from you guys? They requested Thunderstrike. Um, that one I heard from Defalco. Uh, he called and said. I have been approached by Will Moss to do a 10-page Thunderstrike story. Are you interested? And I said, 
so we're talking Kevin? And he went, no, they want Eric. They're doing a package called For the Worthy, and they're interested in a 10-page Eric story. And after eliminating the idea that we would try to in any way bring Eric back in a 10-page backup, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we pretty quickly decided on we would do some kind of an untold tale. And, uh, and Tom said, I'm going to go uh, read through the run uh, over the weekend, and we can talk again Monday or Tuesday. And I said, okay, that works for me, because Tom, I, you know, it, it, it's, been, it's been so long, I mean, like 20-some years since mm-hmm. we had shuttered Thunderstrike that I, that, that, you know, any leftover ideas I might have had that we never got around to had long, long since dissipated into the ether. <laughs> Uh, and my bad memory, but uh, so I, then nothing leapt immediately to mind that was you know still gnawing at me that I always wanted to do with Eric. So I said, please go read. Uh, I will uh, do a little bit of that as well, and uh, you know we'll reconvene in, a, in about a week, and we did. And again, it's that tennis match, that ping pong game, because what Tom came back with was the idea of one, using code blue, which I hadn't considered necessarily. Mm-hmm. And two, he was he was interested in doing something with in the aftermath of the death of Officer Jackson. that was in what, issue seven of the original Thunderstrike run. Yeah. Which was actually penciled by Keith Pollard. I, I didn't even that was one of uh, one of the issues that Keith came in and, and filled in for me. Oh really? So caught up. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even actually illustrate that issue. I did the cover, but I didn't do the interiors. And uh, Keith did a terrific job of it, but after Jackson died, we did do a couple of uh, stories where, you know, Eric was very humbled by that and, and frightened by that. And we had mentioned that a couple of the Code Blue guys were thinking about taking early retirement. And, and uh, Mad Dog had his own response to it. He, he seemed to get more reckless and all this kind of stuff. So we were dealing with you know the different fallout of the different characters from this event. And Tom thought it might be an interesting idea to take that moment after the death and, and, and kind of deal with, in the 10 pages, deal with Eric's moment at the crossroads. Where, because since since we know how Eric's story ended, hmm. we thought it would be interesting to, you know, show the moment where he decided whether or not to continue or to retire. Because, of course, if he would have, if the death of Jackson affected him deeply because he felt he blew it, he felt that he should have been able to protect Jackson, even though Jackson died protecting him. Uh, because Jackson died protecting him. But the bottom line was that if Eric would have quit then, he could have gone back to a nice normal life. Mm. And so we felt that the moment that he decides he's going to continue this might be worth uh, chronicling in this 10-page story. And uh, by, you know, we, what we wanted to do was to, to give him a moment, uh, very eye to eye, very personal with another character, where you know he makes the decision that what he is doing is valuable, that what he is doing is important, and that even though he does have these other responsibilities to Kevin and to other people in his life and to other family, that that 
you know, being Thunderstrike is something he needs to continue doing, uh, even if it could end badly, which we know it did. So, yeah, I mean, we we talked it to death, as we always do. And, <laughs> I mean, at one point I even told him, I told Tom, I said, boy, if we really wanted to go 70s heavy with this thing, we could title this story Gethsemane, because this is Eric's moment in the garden. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Tom went, yeah, okay, we're not going to do that. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> The story, the story did go. Uh, interestingly enough, when he brought Code Blue into it, that Code Blue was uh, was a concept that I did have an unused idea for, which was we, either we could have made it a backup story, we could have done it as a B story in an issue of Thunderstrike, but it was something I never got a, got a chance to do. Is that and I had these different ideas for how Code Blue could take on the Great Gargoyle, and. So when Tom came back with his idea that he, what, it, what I'd like to do is a, is a, is a moment, is a conversation between Stone and Thunderstrike where, you know, Eric is distracted and not, not, doesn't have his head in the game and has to decide whether or not he's going to continue doing this or not. And, uh, and I said, okay, but of course I was trained by the best. I was trained by DeFalco and okay, that's the conversation, but what's happening, comics is a visual medium. We're not going to have that conversation in, in Stone's office. We're going to have that conversation on the field of battle while a lot of other things are going on. <laughs> and so we needed a bad guy. And I said, how about the great gargoyle? Because I had, you know, I have some ideas of how, you know, different things that Code Blue could do to, to, to take on the gargoyle and all this kind of stuff. And if we want to use Code Blue, blah, blah, blah. And, and and it all just started to kind of come together in gel, and uh, and even then, I you know my, what I was picturing was ten pages that started right in the middle of the story and just barreled along and everything. But when Tom turned in the plot, I was I was impressed and, and surprised at how many scene changes there were and how dense the ten pages felt as far as story content. Hmm. And that is part of the craft. You know, is to make make those ten pages feel like there's more going on than you would think could happen in ten pages. And uh, DeFalco is incredible at that. He's just he's, he's a pro. You know, uh, so I was very very fascinated by you know the plot itself. I loved it and uh, and embraced it and sat down and thumbnailed the crap out of it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we came up with a couple of concepts that I thought really worked well and. And uh, you know, I, and I even down to the editing, I I was very impressed with Will Moss on this job and what his notes were on thumbnails and what his notes were on dialogue and what his notes were on, uh, on balloon placement and you know the whole bit. I, I I just thought it went very very well. The only glitch we had, which you'd probably notice if you read, you know you were a Thunderstrike reader, mm-hmm. weren't you? Yeah. Is that uh, Al Milgram was unable to join us for this? Yeah, for this journey back in time. Um, unfortunately, the week that he would have had to have gotten started on it, he was recovering from hand surgery. Oh, and uh, that really threw a wrench into the works. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was very concerned about it because I I was just assuming that Al would be along for the ride and. 
And I was very comfortable with that and looking forward to it. And when it turned out that Al couldn't do it, I made some panic phone calls to a couple of different people and uh, between schedules. And Marvel also does this thing now where each book is budgeted very tightly. And this book was budgeted, you know, when you consider that Simonson came back to, to write the first story, Sal came back to ink the first story, DeFalco was there, you know, that there were a lot of people probably with fairly unwieldy page rates. <laughs> um, what it came down to was there was only so much left the page for the inking. And Sal was already involved in the first story, so you know he was the first person we thought of bringing on board. And then there were a couple other people that we thought about calling, but between the schedule, the physical, how quickly it had to be done, and the page rate, uh, it, it, it turned out to be prohibitive for, for a couple of other people. But I had worked with uh, Keith Williams on a couple of projects uh, outside the mainstream, and uh, was always really impressed with his, with his work over John Byrne on the Hulk, if you remember that run. Oh, yeah. And he also was one of the, I feel, one of the best thinkers Pat Olive ever had on Warlock and the Infinity Watch. Oh, yeah. And I've always been a fan of Keith's work, and uh, he also worked for years on the Phantom newspaper strip, the daily strips of the Phantom newspaper strip. And uh, so he and I have become friendly through working on some of these other projects, and I, I, was, I called him, and I said, are, are you available? Would you be willing to do this? And he was more than game and jumped on board and uh, did a terrific job uh, in, you know, under battlefield conditions. And... Uh, and, and I think, you know, happily, I think he and Al have similar styles in that they're both brush guys. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know that's kind of technical and that isn't necessarily of interest to everybody, but <laughs> the fact that they both primarily work with a brush, I think there are similarities to the treat, to the way they treat the pencils. And, and uh, I, I don't think it felt completely alien to what Al would have done with it. You know, I can't speak to what Al would have done. I'm sure Al would have done a terrific job as well, but there was that. And, and, and then, of course, the editors also decided to to do flatter color and to try to recapture the feel of the '90s. So I, was, I was so happy to see that. Like, there's just something magical. Oh, yeah, okay. oh my god! I mean, I wasn't sure where the opinion would fall on that kind of thing, but it was something that the editor and uh, and the colorist had talked about. Uh, a young lady named Rochelle Rosenberg, and, and it's something that they had decided to do. I wasn't part of that conversation. Oh, really? Okay. And and when um, and, and Will at one point said, "Well, you know, if you're uncomfortable with it, if you want to give me some more notes or something, because usually my notes, DeFalco's notes are always technical. You know, DeFalco's notes, color notes, are always we need to either lighten or darken this so the contrast between the foreground and background is there. You know." things like that my notes are always this guy's pants are blue and, <laughs> you know that's his bicep not his elbow so that should be flesh you know that kind of those are always my my notes <laughs> so even there the, between defalco and i we form an entire brain that, you know <laughs> is dealing with the entire the entire color concept but anyway uh but will made the offer you know that if you if i wanted to to put more notes if I thought it needed some modeling or if I thought it needed some shading. And I said, no, 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 Will, what you're doing is a thing. I mean, it's it's an idea that, that's worth 
taking a shot at it and seeing how the audience reacts to it. So I don't want to step on that. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put my foot on that. So, uh, you know, I, and most of the reactions from Thunderstrike fans have been positive because they've been around longer. You know, I don't know mm. whether it's something that looked odd or stupid to, to real current readers or not. I don't, I have no idea. I, haven't, I really haven't seen that many reviews of the thing, to tell you the truth. I thought it looked special, and it it's interesting because it has that kind of older look. But I I don't know. I like that look. It's kind of like like I remember for a while D, when DC would put out reprints of like older classic material, and they'd always kind of update the coloring. And I was always kind of like, well, you're kind of missing the point. Like I I kind of like that old school coloring. Like I I like the way it used to look. I like the there's a, a certain like vibrancy to it. Dots. I mean, I still like the overlapping bendy dots of the different. <laughs> uh, screens i mean that's to me that says comic book so i'm very old school i'm a dinosaur when it comes to that but uh it definitely looked it looked brighter it looked uh the flatter color it it, it, because sometimes what happens with uh with, with the computer coloring now is that there's so many layers to it and it's it's so fudged with that it almost becomes a neutral color you know i mean it doesn't pop and superheroes should be bright i mean i've always i've always been a proponent of the idea that you know the one thing you shouldn't be afraid of with superman is bright red blue and yellow you know and slowly the superhero pop culture world seems to be coming back around to that and uh, it's wonderful to see I, I liked as well that like when they're fighting outside, there wasn't. I feel like there's a, a tendency, in, and not necessarily in a bad one, but for modern colors to fill in a lot of the gaps or like fill in a lot of kind of the blanker spaces. But I think it actually yeah. made everything kind of pop more because you had more of that like that opposing space that you can kind of see the characters popping out more from it. Well, the, the one thing that I really was that I pushed for uh, and I suggested even set color reference for because sometimes you don't know who you're going to be working with as a colorist and oftentimes they're from foreign countries so you really don't know what their frame of what their sphere of reference is what their frame of reference is and uh, I, I, there was one job I was working on uh, where I was really trying to get autumn leaves autumn foliage <laughs> And in the one, this one job I was working on, it made sense that it would be autumn because the school year was in session, right? Okay. So I, I was really pushing for autumn leaves, and I wasn't able to get them. Uh, you know, the, the go-to color for leaves is, of course, green. You know, <laughs> and a lot of colorists are just going to give you green. You know, um, and sometimes that can be really disappointing. But if you if you look at this job. Uh, uh, the colorist was able to, to give me autumn colors. The trees are yellowish and orangish, and, and uh, I, I, that was something that I think you know. Every once in a while, you gotta think outside the box. <laughs> you gotta realize that you know it's New York State, and it, the fact that the issue was coming out when it was. I mean, actually, most of the trees should have been bare by then. But I uh, figured, you know, what the heck? At least we could go autumn colors. You know, that kind of thing. And it was nice to see it get played through. You know, they could have even done a little bit more with it if they had wanted to, but uh, <laughs> but I was happy with what we got. So. I did like that you had uh, Thunderstrike kind of having a, a classic Spider-Man under the wreckage kind of moment. It's I guess we, we think of that as more of a Spider-Man thing, but it's nice to kind of see, again, this version of the Everyman having the same moment. And then uh, Tom kind of puts a nice button on it by saying uh, he, he, couldn't, bets. he couldn't resist. He couldn't <laughs> resist. 
he, he pointed that out to me in a conversation. After I was either after he saw the pencils or after he saw the thumbnails, he went, "We kind of have our own little mini Spider-Man moment here, don't we?" And I said, "Well, in a broader sense, I guess, yeah, I guess, but you know, it's only a page and a half, you know, that kind of thing." <laughs> and and, uh, and he goes, "Yeah, but I, I didn't realize when we were discussing it that it would feel this much like that Spider-Man moment." And I went, "Oh, okay." And then, of course, when I saw the script come in, and he said, I bet things like this never happened to Spider-Man, I'm like, oh, Tom. <laughs> oh, Tom. You just couldn't let it go by without uh, without a shout-out. <laughs> I thought it worked. It was funny, but, like... It, Good. It, I'm it, glad. I'm glad. He's, usually Tom's instincts are right about those kind of things. It's a nice juxtaposition by page flip, too, right? Like, you have the serious moment, and then, you know, the triumphant moment with, again, a nice little button of a joke. No, I mean that's that's the thing. He is he is a pro. I learned a long time ago to trust DeFalco when he makes choices like that. Believe me. Uh, one of my favorite shots in the sh- in the story is actually the very last panel. I don't know what it was, but that one shot of of Eric looking so hopeful and just the detail on the face is incredible. And even just looking at um, the link you have uh, for the original art at Catskill Comics, just seeing the the intricacy of the line work, it was, it was just so impressive. And I don't know what it is about that one shot, but it really really jumped off the page at me. Well, thank you. I boy, you know. Adam, we can talk anytime you want to talk because uh, it's been terrific uh, to get this kind of a, of a positive assessment and all the different things you've noticed and uh, you know are calling out. Uh, thank you. I, I put a lot of work into that. That that for me, that portrait of Eric was had to be kind of the point of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because yeah. it feels like there's a lot of resolve Heroes coming do not up. Smile enough for one thing. That's know? true. So. Well, it's interesting as well. So I, I didn't know, I didn't realize it at the time, or I hadn't thought of it at the time. But so I was looking at again the original art today because I was trying to decide which page I wanted to buy, and I was talking about it with my wife. And this was the page that we actually ended up deciding on. And I really liked again that la- that last shot. And it really said something to me. So I'm like, oh, I really want to own that. And then when I thought about it afterwards, I realized that both for this and the Spider-Man story, I bought the last page of both, and they yeah. they operate on a very different level because on the Spider-Man one, it's that kind of that sadness that kind of resonates through the page and here it's the complete opposite it's this hopefulness it's this reaffirmation that you have in this last last panel and yet when you know how story uh, how Eric's story ends it's almost sadder <laughs> yeah it's an ironic sadness to that as well you know because yeah I mean at one point um, Tom I, I don't know if it was in one of the original passes on the script or if it was if it was something that we, we had discussed. I think it was one of the original passes on the script. I forget exactly what the line is in the published work, but at one point, Tom actually had Eric thinking, you know, I'm going to continue doing this, even if it kills me. Oh. <laughs> and I called him and I, I said, Tom, that's a little on point, don't you think? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, and he goes, well, how about no matter what? I said, that works, that's fine. There you go. You know? to kind of look at the camera and go even if it kills me is you know might be a little much for for the uh, for the people who even the people that don't know how Eric's story ends you know that kind of thing so well especially right after the Spider-Man comment like you can't be on the nose that many times that quickly but uh, no, I mean, I, because you know, I I suggest dialogue. I do liner notes in my uh, 
I, I send him a, a set of Xeroxes. I, I scan him a set of Xeroxes that have my liner notes all over it. I will suggest dialogues and bits and all this kind of stuff. And it's always interesting to me where where the two of us are coming from because like in, in, in some of my liner notes I was dealing with the fact that the woman that Eric saves doesn't keeps calling him Mr. Thor hmm. and thinks he's Thor and he's, I'm dealing you know he's dealing with the idea that I really need to get a, a press agent you know that kind of thing um, and Tom didn't went a different direction but with, with Tom's thing all through the story which I loved was the whole hammer mace thing yeah, you know where where the, the great Gargoyle is going turn turn over the hammer and he goes it's a maze what uh, never mind you know, <laughs> and I got a big kick out of that because that was actually something that would occasionally come up in the course of the uh, the run with uh, the original run of Thunderstrike and everything so <laughs> but uh, yeah I mean it, it, the way he is able to boil the dialogue down and boil some of my suggestions down to what is absolutely necessary because you know when I told you Tom's original uh, pitch his original take was this conversation between Stone and Eric about what happens next where everybody's brain is and where everybody's heart and head is and whether or not they can continue doing this effectively after what happened to Jackson that conversation basically happens in two panels between Stone and Eric but runs through the entire story as far as inside Eric's head. It's the conversation Eric's having with himself from the moment we meet him to the final panel. Mm -hmm. But the, the actual conversation between Stone and Eric only takes place in, a, in, in like two panels uh, <laughs> at the top of one page. And, uh, you know, so, and, and that's the way a story will evolve. You know, that's the way a story will, will grow uh, once you know what its parameters are and once you know what story you want to tell. So, uh, I mean, the title itself, the original title I had for it was Men of Stone, and then it became Hearts of Stone when two of the characters were female, you know, when Tom introduced the two female characters, the two mm -hmm. scientists, and it became Hearts of Stone. And then as the story became, you know, Eric doubting whether or not he, he could continue in this super heroic lifestyle, it became Hearts of Stone, Feet of Clay. And I was very happy with the evolution of the story, you know, uh, even through the title. So, yeah, I mean, uh, overall, I was, I'm was i very happy with what we've been able to accomplish. And uh, so, yes, as far as the 80th anniversary goes, we had the 10 pages of Thunderstrike, the 10 pages of Spider-Man, we had the one page in Marvel Comics 1000 of the Thor interview that yep. we were able to get uh, Brett Breeding on board for. Now, what, what was that like? Because we just talked about two 10-page stories and how it's a different muscle, and then you're doing a story that's just one page. <laughs> well, it, the parameters, again, the, the parameters were given us, which was it's an interview, an unseen interviewer asking Thor why he does what he does. And, you know, and Tom said, what do you think? And I said, well, Tom, that's something that you and I dealt with more than once in, uh, in Thor. Hmm. And he went, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. And I sent him the two pages. Uh, one was from a, an issue with Thor. Do you remember this? I don't know if you remember these things. I'm sorry if I, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming too much. But the two-part fight we did with uh, Annihilus on Asgard. 
Okay. There, there was a scene where Thor is speaking to a young goddess at a party, and she asks why he's so fascinated with portals, and he talks about the fact that how much he admires us because of our finite time on this planet, you know, which is, that's Thor's thing, as far as I'm concerned. Thor is not above us. He does not see himself, you know, I, I disagree with... Um, a fairly pervasive attitude about Thor these days. I've never enjoyed Thor being portrayed as the angry god above us. And I don't like when Superman's treated that way, I, and I don't like I, I don't like when Thor's treated that way. Because Thor, through his origin story, through the fact that Odin was teaching him humility by making him a, a, a lame mortal, he loves us. He relates to us more than he relates to his own people, but the thing he loves is the fact that we get up every morning knowing that we have a limited amount of time in this life, and we still do something with it. Because as guardians, they don't worry about that kind of thing. They, they don't have that hanging over them, mm -hmm. you know? And he finds that incredible. The fact that they that they they created art, they created they they've uh, explored science, the universe. They've come you know to the what understandings we have come in the time we've we've gotten here, and uh, he finds that incredible in the face of these long-lived creatures that he knows that have accomplished half as much, you know, or, or you know, to just to just have that um, that wherewithal, that acceptance of our fate that uh, is just fascinating to him, and he has taken it upon himself through his connection with us to become our protector, which I thought they've captured pretty well in the movies. You know, I, I, I talked to a lot of fans who didn't like in the movie uh, when Odin said to... Uh, Loki, we're not gods. Mm. We live, we die like mortal men. And Loki's comment was, yeah, give or take a millennia or two, you know, that kind of <laughs> thing. But, you know, that's my take on the characters as far as Odin and Thor and everything is that they aren't seeking worship. They never sought worship. They are an incredibly advanced race of super beings that were the basis for our myths but that they never sought worship. And that Odin, my, my personal take on Odin, because he be, really has become the villain uh, over the last several years of the books, um, I, I think Odin is, he does things, he's playing multi-level chess. Mm. And he's dealing in cosmic consequences that you and I cannot foresee. And he does things that seem cruel and seem cold at times because he is dealing on these higher levels of strategy and everything. But he has created a culture. My, my take on Asgard when, when Tom and I were fortunate enough to do the book for seven years was, was not that it was a warrior culture, but that it was an heroic culture. It was a culture built on protecting the universe. I mean, Odin basically directed all of this early uh, lust for warfare and battle amongst all these higher uh, pantheons and everything. He took that 
culture and, and directed it into basically policing the nine worlds. Hmm. So what Asgardians dedicate themselves to and what Asgardians admire is heroics, is, is protecting the weak and, and rewarding the righteous and, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, that's their philosophy, that's their life philosophy. That's what their songs are about. That's what their poetry is about. Those are the people that become their heroes and, and, and their myths. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I've always seen Asgard as a, as a would be a, a neat place to visit. <laughs> I mean, it would be huge and mind blowing, but I think it would be it would be friendly, you know, to 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 us. But uh, I mean, I, I completely recognize that that is not everybody's take on the character, but. Um, yeah, so when the question was asked, why does Thor do what he does, do what he does um, Tom and I pretty much had that that bullet already in our chamber. So, I mean, we basically were just reiterating what what our take was always on the character. And uh, I was surprised because when, when we got the call, I said, so am I drawing the latest Thor? And they said, no, they, they said they want the traditional Thor. I went, What? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, they said they just wanted it to look like traditional Thor. Um, I said, are they doing other Thors? He goes, Ron, I don't know. <laughs> just, we're doing traditional Thor and traditional Asgard, and we're answering the question as if it was our traditional Thor. And I went, okay, great, you know. So, And Brett was available to, to ink it, and uh, a gentleman named Matt Yaki of... It colored it. It did a terrific job coloring it, and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I liked it a lot. I also was invited to do a, a Star Wars cover that was inked by Tom Palmer that ran on one of their many different Star Wars titles. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I, I was actually at one point was invited to to work on a, uh, a few pages of a, of a Star Wars story, but I was unable to because of scheduling. Uh, and uh, there were, like I said, there were th- th- that and two other occasions I was offered work that I, I was unable to, to take, to be involved with. Um, and uh, DeFalco is actually going to be involved in the uh, the Iron Man 2020 thing that they're going to be doing. Okay. He's going to be doing the backup stories uh, in those issues, uh, not with me. Uh, apparently it was suggested uh, by... C.B. Sabalski that, uh, that it's time for Tom to work with other people. So, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether that suggests that C.B.'s not a huge fan of mine or whether, you know, Tom seemed to think it might even be a budget issue, but uh, Tom's my friend and I think he was just trying to protect my feelings a little bit. But, uh, you know, but I can understand that as well. So, I mean, you know, uh, Tom and I are not joined at the hip as much as uh, creatively <laughs> I, I <laughs> would not mind that at all but you know I mean that is that has never been the case so I have a question for you that it's actually coming from so I had a conversation with Marv Wolfman not long ago he was talking about a, a recent one shot that had come out um, that was a 100-page spectacular, which was actually a miniseries he'd worked on, I think, about a decade ago. And we talked about how what it's like to kind of create a story that ends up getting shelved, and then eventually it kind of comes out of the woodwork and, and finally gets to see print. So along was that... Was it that Superman? Was it that Superman piece? That's, that's what it was, yeah. 
I haven't been able to find that anywhere. I want. I desperately want. Would like to read it, but it's I actually to coming out in a deluxe edition, uh, which I think is actually coming out this month. Um, oh, okay. And has a bunch of uh, ec- extra content in it as well. But along those lines, when we last spoke, which again was like just over three years ago, uh, at the time you had finished work on an inventory story for the Flash that was you did with Tom. So I'm just I'm curious from an artist artist standpoint, what is it like to kind of know that? You know, you, you you put the work in, you, you put a story together, at least in this case, you knew it was kind of meant to be an inventory story, um, and then right. to, to kind of have a publisher sit on it, like, what, is that, what does that feel like for you as an artist? Is it weird? Is it strange uh, knowing that... It's a little that, odd. Yeah? Well, it's a little odd, only because I'm spoiled, and I've been always, I've always been in the trenches, and uh, you know, so it's very unusual when you're in the trenches you're working for the next job out you know I mean you gotta you gotta keep pace so it can be a bit uh, a bit unusual but you know in the since I haven't been working regularly uh, for the last decade or so since I haven't been working regularly in the mainstream I've actually had that happen several times to tell you the truth Adam um, so the flash job I when it finally does see print if it sees print um, you know I've seen I've seen the script uh, I haven't seen lettered pages I've seen colored pages and inked pages and uh, it all holds together fairly well but you know the issue with DC is that they're rebooting these characters so often hmm. that I have no idea what the status quo is of the Flash these days so I have no idea whether or not the story we did matches the status quo and if it doesn't then that almost earmarks it for like the back of an annual or Hmm. you know some kind of a one shot special where they're going to have to have a big editorial comment about where this falls in continuity you know that kind of thing for sure Uh, so you know there's always that uh, problem with inventory too is that at some point (laughs) it's going to become uh, you're going to be too far down the road continuity-wise to really have it not be a complete blip uh, in, in, in continuity. I, it would be nice if people didn't worry about that kind of thing. I don't know about the Marv Wolfman story, but I'm assuming that they probably just made allowances in some kind of a forward for when this story was put together and they actually just kind of let it, let it be, let it be its thing. Which yeah, is, exactly. You just let it stand on its own two feet. Uh, which yeah. was nice, and I mean, it was a, it was a definitely like a full. Again, it was originally a miniseries the way it was originally put together, so it kind of felt that way. But it ended up just being the kind of chapters broken out in the in the one shot. But I mean, it's fantastic stuff. I mean, Marv thinks it's some of the best stuff he's ever written. So he said it was kind of harder in that respect to see to know that it was just kind of died and, and sat on a shelf somewhere, and eventually, you know, kind of got rousted. And he was just so happy that it finally got to see print. Well, I've seen a couple of reviews that, that said very much that as far as the treatments of the characters and everything, that it was a throwback to the best of comics storytelling and treatment of those characters that are involved, which is high praise indeed. Um, and something that, you know, I don't know. I Like I said, I usually... <laughs> demure from commenting too much on what's being done in current comics because I'm not as plugged in as I used to be. Fair enough. But along with the Flash, 
uh, inventory. I mean, I've I've worked on a <laughs> I've worked on a graphic novel for an original character for a uh, uh, a woman who I think at this point is looking at possibly self-publishing. Uh, but it was a character that she created, uh, loosely based on her own autobiography, and I worked on it with Keith Williams and and uh, a writer who used to be uh, the art director and uh, co-publisher for Moonstone Comics, a gentleman named Davey Lansky. And we developed this character and did this, I don't know, 60-some page graphic novel, and it is yet to see print. Uh, we worked on it years ago. Um, it's It's been, you know, it, it took us a while to do it because it was one of those things I was working on while I was taking regular work and paying my rent. Mm-hmm. But we finally completed it, and, you know, four or five years, it's been sitting on a shelf somewhere waiting to be published. Uh, so there's there's a, that case. There's, uh, I mean, there was something I did like 20 years ago for a publisher out in California uh, that these, these guys were licensing themselves and had asked to be turned into superheroes, and they were going to produce their own comic book for their own... Uh, business that they were going to be running hmm. uh, and you know I worked on it Sal Basema inked it uh, it was penciled inked and everything and then this partnership fell apart and that book is never going to be seen you know <laughs> so, <laughs> it does happen you know it's not there's not much you can do about it sure. it's uh, you know those kind of decisions are above my pay grade so as long as I get paid for the pencils I have no expectation past that to tell you the truth you know so when we last spoke, you were actually in the middle of working on, or I think you're about to work on at the time, um, a backup story to uh, the Clone Conspiracy Number One, which was uh, an amazing Gwen oh, Stacy. Really? Gwen Stacy. Yeah, yeah. You, actually, at the time, I don't even think it had been pitched as Clone Conspiracy. It was called Dead No More at the time because uh, that's what you referenced it to it, and you said like I'm working on this upcoming backup. So I just wanted to talk about that for a moment. That was something that yeah. I was I was so sad that the original art seemed to sell out so fast because it was absolutely beautiful work and. And I just wanted to kind of pick your brain about what it was like to kind of, um, you know, do a Gil Kane and to kind of embody what was happening when, you know, just before Gwen died. Yeah, I pulled the reference, you know, and uh, was was looking at the original pages and trying to capture as much of that as I could possibly, you know, recreate what panels I could and try to capture the, that moment as best I could. Um the, the one thing I remember about that is that it was done very much on the fly. It was very last minute, and the anchor on that job, John Dell, I mean, literally had to ink it on, like in a matter of days. Oh wow! I, I, how many pages was it? Do you remember? Was it five, six, ten? I think it was closer to ten. Okay, but I, I mean, I I remember him having to to you know to ink it incredibly quickly and he did an incredible job for the speed which he had to turn it around it was just an amazing testament to <laughs> a very solid freelancer I'll tell you but uh, yeah it was it was interesting I you know they sent me the script I you know I'm not I'm not huge on on uh, revamping history to, to the extent that uh, some guys are um, but, you know, I, overall, I, I felt my job was just to try to be as true to the characters as, as possible. 
and have Captain Stacy look like Captain Stacy and have Gwendy look like Wendy and uh, you know mm-hmm. and all that. Um, that. Those were my those were my two kind of major concerns during during that story was that <laughs> Gwen look like Gwen and Captain Stacy look like Captain Stacy. Well, I'd say you definitely achieved that. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> so not to worry there. So I did double check. It is ten. It was a ten pager, um, okay. which is all the more impressive for John Bell. Um, it's interesting, just given what we just talked about with the last with the two ten pagers you recently did. Um, one of my favorite pages, and I guess it's no surprise to me, but um, of the story is when you have the moment when Gwen first realizes that Peter is spider-man and you have again it's a series of three shots i don't know what it is with me i'm just i have a spare room i'm just gonna invite you to live with me i would like to adopt you because (laughs) it was because that was a, a a moment and a page and a sequence that i was not sure of because it was scripted by by mr dan slott who was in charge of that entire epic Mm -hmm. and I was doing it was off a full script right okay and I went off page I went off script for that because he was asking he was describing the action that was going on in that scene okay okay he was describing you know where Pete was and uh, where Green Goblin was and where Mary or where Wendy was and and all of that it was it was my choice and I was, you know, not sure it was going to fly. It was my choice to stay on, to keep the camera on her, and to try to communicate her reaction with just her pupil dilating and things like that, you mm-hmm. know, and the, and the tear. Uh, that was my call, and uh, thank you for, for appreciating it because I, I mean obviously the writer didn't have a problem with it when he saw it the editor didn't have a problem with it when he saw it but I, I this is the first feedback I've gotten on that and I, I thank you very much for it because that was one of those moments where I decided to climb out onto the branch and wasn't sure whether or not it would get sawed off on me you know it's interesting because I feel like that's the moment for me where that pulls it all together. Like it gives it emotional resonance because like it's not about the other stuff. It's about this moment that this extra layer of tragedy to her death. And right. I just I'm floored by it. Even just looking at it again now, like it just that part really hit me. And again, I feel like I have a type because that's three stories in a row where I really like this close ups that you do. But they're just so affecting emotionally. And so. I, I obviously didn't realize that that was something that was your call, but I think that was absolutely the right move to make. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, it, it, it's always nice when when what we do in a room by ourselves makes it out and is appreciated and, and bounces off the audience and, uh, and and gets a kudo. I mean, that's that's what we do it for. Uh, so I, I appreciate it very much. But yeah, it, it was that was the moment for me because I mean, I was I had a subscription. Spider-Man. I was deeply into the Jerry Conway, John Romita run, and the uh, you know when Gil Kane came back on it. When they you know I, my subscription was running, and I opened up that issue with no title on this on the front page, and read the issue and got to the end of it, and I you know I was. I was shocked, and uh, it, it just engrossed. 
uh, as any fan could be, mm-hmm. of, uh, of what they were doing at that time with you know Pete's, Pete's recovery and his rage and his, his the darkness that he went through. I, I was it was an amazing run. So it was interesting for me to to touch back on those moments at all. <clears throat> we'd we'd done it once or twice. We had uh, we had done echoes of it in Spider Girl. We had mm-hmm. gone to the Brooklyn Bridge a couple times, and uh, so I had the reference and everything. But yeah, the recreating some of the the Gil Kane shots and uh, seeing the dialogue being recreated as faithfully as it was, but with that extra oomph where I wanted to put the camera right there on her as the dialogue was playing out I thought was you know you're right that's that was the heart of what this new dynamic was going to be was that you know she was finding out under the worst circumstances possible mm-hmm. and uh, and how people might feel about that you know of that, that's always been fascinating to me I that's that's where the story is. That's where the meat is. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you watch Supergirl on the CW? Yep. They're doing that right now with uh, Lena Luthor. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, because there there are dozens and there are many different ways to react to that kind of, uh, of of news as there are people who could be told that kind of news. You could realize that oh they were doing it to protect you or you could feel betrayed you know depending on what your relationship is with that person and uh, you know and then of course there's the situation with Mary Jane where she knew and chose not to tell him uh, partly to save herself the deeper involvement in his crazy life you know <laughs> really really the reason why she kept it to herself at the time but um, but yeah it's it, it, you know, I I have to to say that I, I do enjoy when people when they when they have moments like that and they make moments like that, but they remember the character and they remember who these people are and how they may may or may not react in different situations. I mean that that's what makes that's what makes horse races. That's what makes stories exciting to me is how the characters. Uh, all interact and react to whatever the situation is. So it's yeah, an, it was fun to be a part of. It was an interesting moment too, because I mean, it's it's a retroactive thing, but it adds something. Unfortunately, in this t- case, a twinge of sadness because it's extra betrayal and extra sadness when when the character dies. It's interesting. It reminds me of um, there was a series that came out I think ten fifteen years ago called uh, Batlin Jack, which was all about you know the the moments leading up to um, the the final round of the fight that Jack uh, throws and then eventually gets murdered right afterwards. And what I loved about that one is a piece of retroactive continuity that if anyone wanted to use it, they could. But the idea that when he's in the ring, he realizes that his son is able to take care of himself and that it's okay if he goes down swinging because his that his son's going to be all right and that even in the final moments before he dies and like you know uh, you know we'll have to pay a visit to your son and he just laughs at them as before they kill him it adds something fascinating to the character that he didn't let his son die thinking he was powerless thinking he was weak instead he died knowing his son was going to be okay and it added yeah. an, an extra level that didn't make Jack seem as selfish at the end, but really did make him as you know right. more. It wasn't just about it. Wasn't just about his ego. Yeah, exactly. 
and it, and that he was okay with it because his his son was okay and that he knew everything would be all right and it just that floored me because no one had ever done that before and like this such a small tweak that doesn't have to be reverberated anywhere else or ever shown again because it's literally in the moment before like just the c- couple moments before he dies at that last moment but it was just it added something and was impactful and again was about character right and those types of uh, moments are in my opinion the only reason to go back and re-explore some of those situations. <laughs> I mean, if you can, I, I, I'm not big on, you know, updating the science or worrying about that, you know, or, or worrying about the larger impact on the Marvel Universe or, or re, re-declaring it a major milestone or anything like that. But if you can go back to a to a specific moment like that and and, and make it a deeper character moment, then I have no problem with that. You know, I mean, that that doesn't bother me as much. I, I will be honest with you, when they said that this involved Gwendy's death, <coughs> I had one caveat that I asked the editor about because it determined whether or not I was going to take it. Um, and I said, this doesn't have anything to do with that retroactive stuff with Norman Osborn and Wendy, does it? Oh, yeah. And they said, no, no, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with that. It's a completely different uh, stream of consciousness. It's a whole different story. It, it has nothing to do with that. And I said, okay, then I'm in. Because I had no interest in, in being a part of that whole dog and pony show. I, I just... I, that didn't make any sense to me at all. No, I, I, I agree with you there. Um, you spent a lot of time with us already, and I'm very appreciative of it. I have some quick hit questions, if you don't mind. No, not at all. All right. Now, this one I feel like is a longer story, but, um, you know, you could choose to make it as <laughs> long as you like. Short as okay. Um, which is, uh, when did you, I mean, obviously you have a very long collaborative relationship with Sabusema. How did that originally start? Um, it originally started, well, I mean, it originally started with him doing work over me and becoming aware of me uh, on, I think, well, actually, we worked together as long as long ago as the first issue of Kickers, Inc. for the New Universe, uh, for the New Universe back in the day. Oh, wow. In the 80s. He inked the, first, he inked the very first issue of Kickers, Inc. Uh, he only stuck around for the one issue, Brett Breeding inked the second issue. But, uh, but that was my first... Uh, opportunity to, to work with him. I mean, and I was very blessed very early on working with Joe Sinnott and working with, you know, getting a chance to work with Sal and even being inked by John Romita Sr. a couple times. But so that was the very first time. So he was aware of the work I was doing. And then um, when Tom was also editing the MC2 books, he was doing, <laughs> he was he was choosing anchors and he was picking people and and he knew that I was a huge fan of Sal's. So he got Sal to ink our A&X covers past a certain point. That's right. Um, yeah, he wasn't, he was doing some interior work for some of the other books, but he was, uh, he was inking my A&X covers. And, and one of the covers I did was, uh, was an homage to one of his uh, Avengers covers where they took on the Squadron Supreme when we took on the Thunder Guard. I did a, a cover that was, you know, after Salvasema. And at that point, I, I don't remember, I don't really remember at what point we started talking on the phone, but certainly once he became the regular anchor on, on Spider-Girl, uh, we started to talk and, and 
a friendship uh, came about. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Very straight shooter, and uh, you know, I, the, the truth is a very important thing to him. He's a he's a deeply Christian man, and uh, just a very loving guy and uh, he enjoys talking about the industry he enjoys talking about the craft and uh, I, I mean he's disagreed with this but I think one of the things I said early on that made him realize oh this, this kid might know what he's talking about was I told him one of my favorite anchors was uh, Frank Giacoya I just thought Frank Giacoya was a genius as a, as a penciler but uh, very much so as an anchor and uh Sal actually agreed with that. <laughs> I think that was one of the moments where he went, oh, maybe this kid knows what he's talking about, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, we, we share some similar views on, on some of the the, uh, the best craftsmen of the uh, the Silver Age. And, uh, but, but yeah, it's been one of the joys of my uh, of my career that uh, I, I can call Sal to some of a friend. He just recently, a, a, an old friend of mine from high school on Facebook, private messaged me that um, uh, in the Baltimore Sun newspaper, the weekend crossword puzzle, one of the questions was three letters, long time Avenger artist, blank Basema. <laughs> and my friend went, Ron Friends, you know, that kind of thing. And I went, John, it's John, just jam it in there, John. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and he came back with, have some respect for the living. And I'm like, don't preach to me. I'm going to call Sal. And I talked to his, I talked to Joan, his wife, and I told her about it. She got a big kick out of it. And, you know, I mean, Sal and I are still working together on, uh, on the Blue Baron Heroes Union stuff for Sid Comics. And so I just sent him a package of pages early in the week. And I, we haven't connected yet. Uh, I, as I said, I talked to his wife, uh, let her know the package was on its way, and then he called me back, and we missed each other, so we haven't connected yet. But uh, I always enjoy talking to Sal. He's uh, he's terrific. And just saying that to you right now, there is a little nine-year-old me going, I don't believe that thing. You know. Now, with Sal, like, I, I mean... That's a nice way of saying this. He's, I mean, he's a little older now. Uh, it's amazing that he can still do the work. I mean, he's in his 80s. I, I, yeah, he's in his 80s. I'm not trying to be insensitive yeah. to his age, but like that's pretty impressive. That I, mean, I don't know what kind of dexterity I'm going to have at 80, what 82, 83. Like that's pretty impressive. They still what's able. Stunning. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always impressive when they're able to maintain. Sal has Sal had open heart surgery what, 10, 15 years ago, if oh, wow. maybe not even that long ago, uh, and uh, you know, bounced back from it because he's, he's always been very physically fit. He bowls incessantly. <laughs> <laughs> when he had his open heart surgery, it was all he cared about was getting back on the lane, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so he, he keeps, he, he takes good care of himself, you know, uh, and, and he and his wife take good care of each other. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm always impressed. I mean, Joe Sinnott's in his 90s, and, and he's still cranking. I mean, the, the work he was doing on the news on the Sunday strips, the newspaper strips, Spider-Man newspaper strip, that was as proficient, as solid as anything I've seen. You know, I mean, the, what, what's crazy is that Joe Sinnott is outlasting the tools of the of the craft. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he can still do it, but 
anymore. The brushes can't do it anymore. <laughs> you know, he's been retraining himself with like markers and brush pens and stuff. You know, uh, but I mean, he he just did a piece over. He did a Silver Surfer piece over me as a commission, just within the last year and a half or something. It was just freaking gorgeous. I mean, the, it, it's incredible. Wow. So yeah, I mean that that. I mean, we all thought Jack Kirby you know, kind of suffer and, and, and age, uh, and his, and, and I don't know what his physical challenges were. Um, but I've, I've seen people lose the step. I mean, it's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. It just mm-hmm. is. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's always amazing when, when gentlemen can get to that age and still snap a line and, you know, create what they're creating it's incredible i mean sal's commissions are still uh very energetic and incredibly well thought out and uh, i mean I, I love seeing what he does through catskill and uh anytime you know anytime i see the pages on blue baron i mean it's i i i'm always i always feel incredibly confident handing pages over to sal because at the very least i'm going to get exactly what i gave him back hmm at best, there's super Salbisema stuff all over it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but at the very least, he's going to give me back exactly what I gave him in the pencils. So. Um, let's move on to another question. Um, that was one of the uh, lightning round questions. It didn't feel like it, but uh, it started <laughs> It started with a lightning round question. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, so I guess in the last year or two, uh, some of your Superman Blue stuff was reprinted. What's it like to kind of see that coming back into print and uh, actually having that on the shelves again? I, I, I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> Never said you were. I'm just more curious. Yeah, like, no, no, I, I, you weren't suggesting that. I'm not trying to say you were suggesting that. But I, no, I, I like it. They sent me, you know, they sent me a nice, at least one or two copies of it. And, and uh, I, I see that it's being repackaged. I mean, for as much as people make jokes about it, for as much as it was controversial at the time, I guess, to a certain degree, mostly because of the way things like that are marketed. I mm. mean, the ridiculousness of it is that, you know, at the time, uh, actually, that piece of art of Superman standing there from the cover of, what was it, 123 or something, was probably the most reprinted piece of art I've ever done, because that thing showed up in Time Magazine, it showed oh, yeah. up uh, in TV Guide, it showed up in local newspapers across this country, because that became the the avatar of this change. And, of course, at the time, we were all told that we had to say, this is Superman now. You know, Mike mm-hmm. Carlin told us if you don't want to, if you don't want to be just a, a liar, you know, if you don't want to be a hard sell liar, just say, quite honestly, this is Superman now, <laughs> and let that <laughs> sit there. You know, because everybody knew sooner or later he's going to be back. You know, that kind of thing. He came back from the dead. He sure as hell is going to come back from a onesie. You know, <laughs> so. Uh, but I enjoyed those, uh, you know, I was flattered that my design was chosen and I was, uh, it, you know, I, I loved the fact that they were using the logo on stuff, on watches, mm-hmm. t-shirts, and, uh, I got a big kick out of it. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a storyline. It, it, I, I don't know why people get too worked up about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, the one comment I get the most when people are trying to be nice is that I really like the design, just not for Superman. And it's like, okay. 
you know, and, and, and I also enjoyed working on the uh, the four part story where we created Strange Visitor, but you know, she didn't stick. She didn't. Uh, you throw a lot of stuff against the wall in a thirty some year career, and uh, sometimes it sticks, and sometimes it doesn't. And she mm-hmm. didn't. But, uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know. But it was fun working on this uh, four issues because I got to work with my brother. Uh, he scripted them, and uh, Sal inked them, and. You know that kind of thing. Joey Cavalieri was the editor. I enjoyed working with Joey, so you know it was it was a great experience, even if it didn't uh, roll out and turn into anything. You know. Yeah. So, so I mean, I like being recognized. What's funny to me, Adam, it, it still happens to this day because it, it was something that back in the '80s it was a lot more likely to happen. But I'm I'm shocked today that there are still you know people that are almost all Marvel or almost all DC hmm. because when I, when I went to DC in the 90s to do Superman after Thunderstrike shut down um, there were people who didn't know about my Marvel stuff they just said oh whoever this friend's guy is hang on to him you know and that was very flattering and okay <laughs> seven years before okay but you know and there are, I mean, there's still people on my Facebook page, and I'll post the Superman thing. You know, I never knew you worked for DC. Interesting. It's, you know, yeah, I did a little book called Superman for three years, two, three, <laughs> two, three years, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and there are Superman guys that are going, really, you did Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That is crazy. I'm kind of associated with them sometimes, yeah. Just a little. Yeah, you know, so I mean, I, believe me, I, it, it used to be you were in rarefied air if you worked on both Spider-Man and Superman, but these days, I, more and more people have done it. It's uh, it's not it's not as big a deal as it was. You know, back when they did the original Superman-Spider-Man team-up, Ross Andrew was like the only guy <laughs> that That's had right, ever yeah. done both characters, you know? <laughs> uh, and it made perfect sense that he was the gentleman to do that, but... Uh, you know, it's not the case anymore. Not anymore. So I have a, a bit of a more of a general question. Um, when you get asked to do a variant cover for a book, generally speaking, like how much direction are you provided? Like I'm speaking specifically in the last couple of years, you did an amazing variant for Amazing Spider-Man 800. And then you also did a variant for, I guess, Secret, I think it was a Secret War, or sorry, Secret Empire Zero. So I'm just curious, like right. what, what kind of direction is usually given when you're doing a project like that. I would imagine Amazing Spider-Man 800 was probably a little bit different given the legacy of the number and that maybe they asked you for something in particular. Well, they did, actually. I mean, a lot of it, uh, you get you do get more direction on variants just so they can make sure that, especially when they do multiple variants, that they don't all look the same, you know. So they, they usually want to see a quick thumbnail or something or at least get a pitch from you about what you want to do. Um, so yeah, the, the but the uh, the Spider-Man 800, it was a suggestion of the uh, of the editor to do a take on a recreation of that one cover uh, with Hobgoblin mm-hmm. <clears throat> of them breaking through the glass. But the issue over there, but then became what what can I do with the glass, you know, to do it? And and I I became aware. That I mean, because I wasn't reading the book at the time, but I became aware that the the uh, red goblin was a combination of Norman and, uh, and and Carnage and and all this kind of stuff. So I, I uh, <laughs> partly 
simply because I was going, please, please let this be the real death of Norman Osborn. <laughs> so that's why I decided to do the full circle thing where I used or recreated the Ramita shot of the original unmasking, you know, mm. uh, and and tied it in that hopefully and the background was all done in greens, which was you know really really nicely done, I thought. And uh, so that was, you know, that was it. It was suggested by the editor that I do some kind of a take on one of my Hobgoblin covers. And there, that was the obvious one to do. And then I turned it into that kind of a full circle Norman Osborn thing. But, uh, you know, I, I, poor Norman, should have died back in 122, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we, we actually brought him back in our own little way in Spider-Girl, but I don't think he ever should have been brought back in any other way but that, you mm. know, that kind of thing. When he came back and became basically, you know, when they when they decided that he was behind every every bad thing that had happened to Pete in the 20 years in the meantime and everything, it's like, holy crap, really? <laughs> they just turned Norman into the devil, and then somehow he still got handed the leadership of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's like, how does this happen? So, Comics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that Norman can actually get some rest now. <laughs> Even if it's a dirt, a nice long dirt nap, I would like for Norman to be out of it. He, he has earned his rest, I think. So. <laughs> Is he back already? Uh, yeah, he, he, he didn't die. So he he's... didn't die at the end of the whole thing? No. He's still alive. Is he like running the? Is he like the leader of the Justice League now or something? <laughs> no, not, I mean not yet. Um, oh, okay. Actually, technically, I think right now he believes he's Carnage instead, so he's he thinks he's someone else. But his oh, body's is it a alive. Booby hatch or something or what? Pardon me. Is he in a booby hatch somewhere? Or is he uh, the- yes, actually, he was in Ravencroft. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. okay, if he's in Ravencroft, that's fine. Just keep him on the shelf for a while. <laughs> um, no, this All is. Right. This is kind of coming back to uh, the question of, um, uh, you know, seeing your stuff reprinted. So now that their Marvel seems at least now for now committed to reprinting Spider-Girl. So we're having the third complete collection. has actually been uh, it's listed to come out next year, which gets close to the beginning of your run. Uh, on the book. Yeah, just close. Yeah, Pat had a hell of a run there, didn't he? Yeah, like, <laughs> Pat was on there about till issue 50 or so, right? So Yeah, I'm past 50. Yeah, I, I think I came on, like, at the end of the 50s, like, 58. I mean, my, I didn't start regular until the, the 60s, yeah. Okay, so if we end up getting a volume four, hopefully, uh, that'll have the beginning of your run. It's nice to actually have that book, you know, finally kind of reprinting a lot of it. I mean, that's... Sometimes with these reprintings, we get you know some of it, but they, they kind of stop. But the fact that we're going to get at oh, least yeah, the, the uh, yeah the the digest stopped way before we oh, got yeah. the, the whole uh, original run. Yeah, I mean the the Amazing Spider Girl run has already been collected as trades. That's true. That's right. They were nice packages. I, I was really happy with those packages because when we were doing Amazing, we actually put some thought towards six issue arcs, knowing that that's how they were doing the trades, and we weren't doing. <laughs> necessarily six chapters to every story but what we were conscious of was that not only every story have a beginning middle and an end but that every six issues had a larger arc of a beginning a middle and an end mm. so when I sit and read the trades I am just amazed at the genius of Tom DeFalco <laughs> so, 
And your own genius, right? <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to say that. I'll let you say that, Adam. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I'll sound like, you know, other people in this industry that I don't want to sound like. <laughs> I, I may have asked this question before, but um, when you were illustrating What If 105, which ended up being, you know, the, the book that launched Spider-Girl, um, if, if you had known that it was going to birth its own line, is there anything that you would have done differently in terms of how you approached it, or would you do everything exactly the same? If The only thing we would have done differently if, um, if we would have known it was going to birth MC2 was we might have given a little bit more thought to the team of Avengers that we saw mm-hmm. and the uh, the Fantastic Five, you know, things like that, because those were supposed to be one-off panels. So <laughs> 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 uh, <clears throat> we, we pretty much, once we were faced with doing an MC2 line, you know, we had completely different conversations about what team would have the most legs and how we would put the team together and all that kind of stuff so if you were if you remember in in anx number one we had jubilee show up we had speedball show up but then they also took they also left at the end of issue one and said you know i'll be andy if you need me you know that kind of thing because they they were that wasn't really how we decided to build the team when we were given the opportunity to build a team from scratch so yeah you know and uh of course, in the original shot, it wasn't Juggernaut Jr. It was supposed to be Kane Marco. Uh, and uh, Jesus, we have. I know I did a sketch where we had Carnage in there too. That was that didn't see print though, did it? That was no. I, that that's brand new to me. New information. Yeah. No, because no, when we were when we were putting together the one panel, we even had discussions about you know, some bad guys who turned good and all that kind of stuff, you know. Okay. uh, And so I had done an initial sketch that actually had somebody there in the carnage symbiote. So, so yeah, there would have been things that would have, had we known that this was going to go to series, uh, especially to an MC2 larger universe, then I I do think there would have been a few different choices made. But, Mm. uh, you know, but I, I certainly there's nothing there that I regret. I think we, uh, yeah, I, that's one one of the single issues of which I am most, I am proudest uh, as far as crafting a pilot that we didn't know for sure would be a pilot. You know, mm-hmm. that was just our way to approach that story because for Tom and I, it, it, it functioned very personally for us because. We did some time on Spider-Man. We hadn't done Spider-Man in years, and we were given this opportunity to do The Next Generation. So for us, it was like the network called. They want to do a show (laughs) with the same actors and the same characters, but it's The Next Generation. What do you got? And but for us it was like okay we can we kind of pretend that nobody has seen these characters since Tom and I left the title you know what I mean <laughs> and and when I were checking in with these old friends of ours and uh, it was it was a lot of fun to do but there was there was a lot of emotion in it because Tom and I brought a lot of emotion to it you know I mean we love these characters so oh, for sure like and I I always I, I'm always 
I always have such fond memories because I, you know, I picked up What If 105 right off the newsstand, or not the newsstand, I guess the comic book stand, but, you know, and I knew nothing about it. It it came out that day, and it was always, you know, very personal to me because, you know, I was trying to think i was probably like 14 15 years old not to age everyone so much but you know i was you know in that right age category i really liked it and then suddenly it took off and there's this whole thing came out of it and i got to be there at the beginning you know so i always had a, a special affinity for that book oh, we were surprised and, and flattered by its uh, by its popularity too um I mean, at one point, Tom was approached at the office by Bob Harris, who was editor, you know, he's editor-in-chief at DC now. He was editor-in-chief at Marvel then. <laughs> um, and he said, uh, I want to talk to you about this uh, Spider-Girl pitch. And Tom went, what are you talking about, Spider-Girl pitch? <laughs> yeah, because when we were just doing the one issue, I had done uh, conceptual drawings uh, in color of older Pete, older Mary Jane, uh, older Normie with the tattoos and what his tattoos looked like on front and back. You know, a lot of it's just for me, but I sent a lot of it to DeFalco. Uh, your full color Xerox is to DeFalco, so he was seeing the development and everything and making notes and, and making suggestions. So, but, but it was it was a lot of pre-production for just one issue. So the assumption was in the office that we were pitching this as a pilot to begin with, which we were not. <laughs> so, you know, it was one of those things where, because uh, it was also Bob Harris who said, and I, and I also love this this, jug, this junior juggernaut that you have in this one shot. <laughs> and Tom went, junior juggernaut? Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, junior juggernaut. <laughs> so he, when Tom called me about, we're going to do an MC2 line, you know, uh, he said, oh, and we also have to, we also have to come up with something with Junior Juggernaut. And I'm going, who's Junior Juggernaut? He went, uh, you know that shot of Juggernaut in that story? I went, yeah. And he goes, that's Junior Juggernaut. So just keep it to yourself. But we're doing, we're doing Juggernaut Junior now. So, you know, there you go. Tom seems like the, at times, the most dangerous uh, kind of yes and man in improv. <laughs> exactly. You just, you go with the flow. If it means work, you just say, thank you, may I have another. <laughs> that was another book not to say that not to shill too much for you but I mean so they reprinted it this this summer as the I guess the Marvel's Greatest Creators kind of banner and so you have a version of that on Catskill Comics where you can get a signed version from you and Tom uh, of this reprint <laughs> Felco. That's, that's all Tom Adam they, uh, they sent me an email and they said that I could pay them <laughs> to produce a book that has my name at the top of it so I can take it around to live appearances and sell it. And I said, what? let me get this straight. I'm a freelancer, and I've worked for you for 30, 40 years, but you're asking me to pay you to produce a comic with my name on it so that I can sell it and sign it. Um, no, thank you. I'm not interested. Is that really how so, it came like, about? Yeah, that's how it comes about. They offer these to you. Yeah, oh, they really? Offer, they I... offer to do a print run for you if you'll pay them. Wow, I had no idea. And so what ended up happening was like the, a week later, DeFalco calls, and he said, oh, you're going to be getting a package for me. And I, he said, I don't know when they're going to show up, but I mean, you're going to be getting a package for me. I said, of what? And he goes, well, they, they sent me this email about publishing these, these books with our names on them. And I went, yeah, I got the email. 
And he goes, did you get any? I said, no, I'm not going to get any. <laughs> and he went, he said, good, because I told them, uh, can we get it with both our names on it? And they went, well, that's not how we usually do it. He goes, I know, but can you do it that way? And he and they said, yes. And I said, Tom, you do realize that when the book came out, it had our names on the cover. <laughs> and he went, shut up. <laughs> he said, so... So he ordered enough for both of us with both our names on the cover with a slightly different cover on it. Yes. And he sent me half of them. And now, now, now he goes, now that's the thing, he goes to conventions, he goes to more conventions than I do. He goes to conventions. He sells these things. I don't know what for. He sends me half the money. He gives his half to charity, but he sends me half the money. And I said, Tom, why are you sending me half the money when you're the one who bought the books? I mean, I'll send you half the money that I make selling these things, but why should you send me half the money? He goes, just leave me alone. Just let me do this. So there you go. He's, he is... He's got the biggest heart in the world, and sometimes it's bigger than his brain. But uh, <laughs> well, I will say that I did buy one off your site, so I hope you gave half the money to Tom. Well, Tom wants you to know that they are extremely limited. <laughs> it, it irritates him that it does, that on the website it doesn't say how extremely limited this version of this reprint is. <laughs> well, I did not know any of this backstory, but that will makes that makes owning it all the more fun. Because there was well, the one they did of Marvel Legends with both our names on it that, that Marvel printed just reprinted the original cover with her sitting on the copy block. That's right. The one with the, that that they that they conned Tom into paying for <laughs> has the splash page on the cover of her kicking uh, Green Goblin in the face. So those are the the differences, and it's. It's just silliness. I, I find it incredibly silly. I, I have to admit, I, I was very surprised. I did a convention in Ohio, and I took them along, and I I sold like a dozen of them or something. <laughs> <laughs> just people are going, oh, what's this? And I went, it's a reprint of a book you may actually already have. And, and they're going, please, please, stop the hard sell. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, if you want one, go ahead. I'll sign it for you. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, a salesman when it comes to that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, You're the creative one. Uh, okay. Tom claims, you know, Tom claims both. He loves writing. Uh, he started out writing uh, uh, copy for mm. uh, advertising. Not not advertising per se. What what am I trying to say? Um, I, I can't think of the term I'm trying to come up with. But he's very good at writing uh, hype copy and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's one of his little hobbies. Just trying to trying to trying to write things in such a way that people will buy things they don't need. <laughs> well, it worked and, on and me, I guess. About, <laughs> and being excited about it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a few, a few listener questions, and I'll let you get back to your evening or go to bed because it's That'll getting be later. Fine. <laughs> I'll be happy to. Um, so the first person just wanted to know what your approach was to rework existing characters to better fit into your aesthetic style. So, for example, he was mentioning that uh, your redesign of Aranya in Amazing Spider-Girl really helped the character feel as though she belonged in the MC2. Uh, what is my approach? Um, with Aranya, 
um, my approach was very much what I felt they miscalculated when they relaunched her as Spider-Girl. Um, because when Aranya was first created, you know she was going to steal our name from the very beginning. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, at around the time that we were doing Spider-Girl 75 and she was wearing the black costume. Oh, yeah. Uh, originally, she was supposed to rename herself Spider-Woman at the end of that issue because the original launch of Aranya was was going to be called Spider-Girl. Even though our book was still running and was still selling well, mm-hmm. they were going to take our name. And there was a lot of pushback from our fans, but there were also people within Marvel that were thinking, is that really such a good idea to change change the name of one title and give that title to another book in the midst of everything, you know, and all this kind of, and they blinked at the 11th hour, they blinked and decided not to do it. <clears throat> but the original launch of Aranya was all about her being a streetwise Latina. And when they relaunched her as Spider-Girl, they lost all of that. Hmm. You know, and, and I was kind of sorry to see that they lost all of that. So what I wanted to do doing her as an adult was I, I mean, had a couple of different designs but and I went with the, the leather coat uh, but I was also playing with a design that just had like a, a, a flowy kind of a skirt off of the hip mm-hmm. that felt to me like a, like, a, like, a, like a dancer's uniform like a dancer's costume that would kind of move neat while she was fighting and all this kind of stuff and felt Latin to me, you know? Uh, And it was important to me, like that bit when they first meet where she's uh, calling Mayday Hermanita through the whole fight. And then (laughs) Mayday finally says, and I'm not your little sister, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) That was something that I suggested. I wanted to bring back the idea that she was speaking, she was throwing some Spanish in there, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, and and it was actually, I mean, certainly nothing happened without Tom's approval and without Tom's input, but it was an idea that I was very directed about to take the Black Tarantula character and tie him in, because Tom had created the Black Tarantula in his Spider-Man run without me. That's right, yeah. Is, he, is he allowed to work Spider- without you? <laughs> is allowed and he does fantastic work without me even though it hurts very deeply so let's not talk about it anymore um but when we wanted to use black tarantula in spider girl it was my idea to say tom why don't we take the black tarantula and make him a part of what straczynski did with that spider cult thing Hmm. he could be like the darth vader of that spider cult and Tom kind of liked that idea. And if you look at the secret origin of the Black Tarantula in Spider-Girl, a couple of the characters that show up and everything, you know, it's it's very much suggesting that the, the origin of the Black Tarantula overlaps with the what Straczynski told us about this spider cult. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we tied him into Aranya and, and kind of gave it a a consistency that I thought uh, was necessary and, and uh, 
and, and I think we did a pretty neat job of tying it together. By the time on Sp- by the time we did it in Spider Girl, though, most people had forgotten <laughs> about that that amazing Spider Man run. So it's not like we were getting a lot of people going ding 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 ding. Oh, I caught that. That's the Straczynski stuff. You know that kind of thing. It, it didn't really happen that way. But uh, but it was it was fun to connect the dots and kind of make it all all come together. But you know, in the case of Aranya, I was interested in giving her. Uh, you know, something that looked a little more Latin, that looked independent and separate from, you know, because what she originally wore was like the the biker pants and the Taft t-shirt and and all that kind of stuff. So obviously she was into stuff that was a little bit more practical and and, uh, and off the rack than than costumes. I'll also be honest with you, I was a big fan of the Underworld movies. Oh yeah. So, (laughs) So she was partially... Uh, uh, influenced by Selena from the uh, from the underworld. Films. Oh, so, uh, that's definitely there if you look for it. So. Hmm. Next question: uh, We have uh, when designing okay, the. Wait, wait, did they did they specifically ask about Aranya? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, that was the deal for that. But anytime I redesign a character or take a new approach to a character, I try to be as loyal to the history of the character as possible and uh, and, and even if I can even introduce elements from past costumes and things like that mm. to try to, to, to keep a certain visual consistency to the character and stuff makes sense uh, the other question was uh, when designing Blue Baron did you take any inspiration from the Captain America of 1781 story that you did with Roger Stern in the Sentinel Liberty series because to them at least the design looks a bit similar it, uh, the design did end up looking similar. I cannot deny it. They are not the first person to, to point that out. But I will honestly say no. Uh, I was not influenced at all by that. For one thing, when I did that original story with Roger Stern, I had no friggin' idea how to draw a tricorner hat. <laughs> um, and I, I had to learn for Blue Baron. I'm still learning with Blue Baron because... I, uh, early on, I was doing more of a tricorder, more of a pirate's hat that has a little bit more flair to it. But now a, a dear friend of mine has given me a tricorner hat to use as reference, but it's a, more of a basic tricorner hat. It doesn't have the flamboyance of the, of the kind of pirate style I was doing before. And now, between you, me, and the lamppost, I'm trying to decide whether or not I should go back to the pirate style one or whether I should stay with the more traditional tri-corner hat, <sighs> these things. But anyway, no, I, <laughs> the Blue Baron was uh, conceived off of a hand-drawn drawing of a Baron that I was sent by Darren Henry that I'm assuming he just got it off the internet. <laughs> but it was like a, you know, it was a, a revolutionary war-era Baron, and he had the pearls, and he had the cuffs, and he had the, the uh, ankle pants with the, the ribbons tying them off at the knee and things like that. And all of those elements were things that I tried to include, you know, the braid and all that kind of stuff were all things that I tried to get into the Blue Baron costume. Um, and I tried to take them and use them as, you know, traditional superhero shapes and, and tried to turn them into traditional superhero motifs like the cuffs kind of read like Captain America's gloves and and the cuff on the, the ankle reads as a buccaneer boot. We actually had a problem at one point. The entire first issue was colored with the cuff being colored white as if it were a buccaneer boot. Oh. But 
that was not intended to be. It's supposed to be short pants. It's supposed to be pants like they wear on Star Trek, but with the red ribbon tying it off. Okay. And so I, I had to, I, it was the one little insistence that I made. I said, Darren, is it possible for us to have Glenn go back in the first issue and recolor the cuff as the blue legging? Because that's what it's supposed to be. And he went, okay, okay. So Glenn went back and recolored the entire first issue, recolored the entire first issue. But if you look at the corner box on the covers, yeah, it's, it's still colored with the white cuff. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and even with Sal Buscema, I had to tell Sal that's not a boot because he would occasionally ink it with a lip like it was Captain America's boot. Okay. And I would say, Sal, that's not. It's, it's the pant leg tied off across the calf. And he went, okay, I'll pay more attention when I'm, when I'm yanking it the next time. And we, we haven't had a problem since. But because yeah, when I first pointed it out to him, Sal's very big at busting my nuts. And he kind of went, ooh, I'll have to look into that, Ron. <laughs> he, he, did, uh, he did start playing ball with me and everything's fine. But, but yeah, it's these little things that I get caught up in is, is details that I, you know, I did it for a reason. I'm hoping it reads well and, and if it gets colored wrong uh, uh, Uncle Ron's gonna go to the hospital yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. the same person wanted to know uh, was there ever a character you created whose popularity caught you by surprise sure Every, everyone that was popular <laughs> uh, the fact that Thunderstrike caught on the way he did was incredibly gratifying the fact that Eric Masterson caught on the way he did <clears throat> was very uh flattering i mean the, the fact that eric caught on the fact that eric as thor caught on and was as popular as it was mm-hmm. the fact that then thunderstrike was as popular as it was you know I, again i'll mention thunderstrike was not canceled because of lack of sales thunderstrike was canceled because rod perlman's people had that stupid idea of canceling half the line and the half that's left will sell twice as well mm. so thunderstrike and a bunch of other books that were selling just fine thank you very much were canceled all at the same time because somebody had a stupid idea. So, you know, that's why I can go to conventions and still find people who were huge Thunderstrike fans because the books were selling incredibly well. True. Uh, even though it was canceled. Um, so, uh, yeah, any of those characters, but the, despite the fact that Spider-Girl has the loyal fan base that it does is, is incredibly flattering. It's always surprising. It's always surprising. It's always flattering. Uh, it's always humbling. And, and I think it really it comes from the fact that, that Tom and I create work to create characters that are likable. You know, if we're gonna if we want you to come back every month and spend some time with this character, we try not to make them homicidal assholes. <laughs> you know, or uh, because I mean I'm, I'm stunned when I read these books now, and and all these characters are bastards. <laughs> And they're making choices that are dark and ugly, and you know, we're not. You know, we we have an entire generation or two of readers who who either don't like or aren't used to seeing superheroes smile, hmm. and that is nuts to me. <laughs> I mean, it really is nuts to me. So I, I'm very much a dinosaur when it comes to that kind of stuff. 
A follow-up question from, again, the uh, the same person. We just wanted to, uh, they said, it might be a tough one to answer, but which series or collaboration has been your favorite with the legendary Tom DeFalco? Oof. Yeah, but that is a tough one. Um, it's like choosing your children, right? Like, Yeah, they're all your kids. Um, I enjoyed our run on Spider-Girl immensely. I enjoyed our run with Thunderstrike immensely. I knew every morning when I got up during the seven years we were on Thor that these were going to be the good old days. Hmm. I mean, I I knew in my heart that I that this was going to be one of my f- all-time favorite creative periods of my life. I knew it couldn't last forever, but God, I wish it could have. Um, so yeah, I it, they really are. Um, a next, the short run of A next was just an incredibly wonderful collaborative creative period for me. So. If I had to pick one, I would probably, I'd probably say A next. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of that book, so I love that you said that. But I just, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. Well, A next was because Tom was editing the books the first year, that first year. Yeah. A next, it it was a little bit more me then maybe the balance between me and Tom might have gone a little bit more me. Okay. With Thunderstrike, that wasn't as much the case. Thunderstrike was very 50-50. Thor, of course, other people had handled Thor before, so he wasn't just ours, you know. But Eric was very much 50-50, Tom and I. But just because of the balance of the work and the amount of concepts and... Uh, story beats that made it into A next were very much were a little bit more me. A little the percentage was skewed a little bit more me because Tom was also busy editing hmm. the other titles. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I I felt a little bit more hands on involved in the actual story and the crafting of the characters and the overall development arcs of the characters and things like that. That killed me when that book was canceled and the characters went on under other people's care yeah uh, it, uh, it's very it was very hard for me to see as much as, much as I thought he did a wonderful job as far as the, the Anex miniseries and stuff I mean Pat got to do last last uh, Hero Standing and Last Planet Standing and Ron Lim did that Anex miniseries and even uh, Todd Nock doing the uh, American Dream mini that's right yeah that I did covers for I, all of that I, I don't remember the specifics of what I was doing at the time or if I was busy on something else or if I was just between jobs or what the deal was, but um, any time I had to let go of those MC2 characters, I was heartbroken. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say, again, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I mean, and I've said this multiple times in the podcast before, like A&X was, again, a, a very big deal for me when I was younger. I really liked it. I, really, I loved every issue of it. I have a special kind of place in my heart for it because um, some of the issues were hard for me to find when they were first coming out. And I remember I was visiting my grandmother in like the last few years of her life, and she was actually able to find some of the issues for me. So it has an additional kind of level on it for me. But I've just always loved A&X. Um, I actually picked it up digitally and so i so i can always enjoy it no matter where i am and also i have the original issues i actually started reading it to my son as well um so it still plays even if you don't understand the original continuity it's still just a great story well thank you i i'm really happy to hear that i'm glad that 
has even has a legacy aspect of it for you, Adam, you know, because that's certainly what the whole book was about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all of those characters for me were, were very connected to my own sense of the original Marvel Universe and what it meant to me. And, you know, there were just so many wonderful moments in the course of those 12 issues for me that from... From Kevin Masterson's attitudes about Jarvis mm-hmm. to uh, that moment at the end of the first issue where we do a panel where each member that joins has a very specific reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, Kevin wants to walk a mile in his father's shoes because he never got the chance to really know his dad. J2 is going to do it because to, to make up for his dad's lousy reputation. Uh, Cassie's going to do it because she wants to get out from under her dad's shadow. You know, it just it all just worked for me, and those characters became very real for me. And uh, you know, my friends, I you know, don't put too fine a point on it, but uh, that version of Kevin was was uh, was very special to me. Uh, that design for Kevin, the MC2 design for Kevin, was up on my wall. Within a year of Thunderstrike being canceled. Oh, really? When I would I would dream of possibly doing Kevin as Thunderstrike, and that's why he was he was the most deliberate person that was in that panel in What If One Hundred and Five. Interesting. Was that I wanted to throw that version of Kevin that was up on my wall. I wanted to put him in a panel and get him published. Wow. So when when that was when we were told that. You know, that was going to be a series. That's why I did A Next instead of Spider-Girl. I it's, followed Kevin. It's, it's interesting when you, when you put a fine point on it, how many of the A Next characters had father issues. Well, they're, they're all dealing with either father or mother issues. <laughs> Together, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we found out later that uh, Henry and Hope Pym were dealing very deeply with mother issues as well as father issues. But yeah, the, it, it's parent issues. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we define ourselves by <clears throat> by our parents, by either aspiring to be more like them or swearing to be different from them. We, mm. you know, who our parents are, we, we're. We're all the living legacies of the leader of the band. You know, I mean, that that's very much a part of... I know it's very much a part of male culture. I, I, my feeling is it's also very much a part of female culture that the relationship with the mother is incredibly integral to who a young woman becomes, mm. in my observation. Um, you know, positive, negative what their attitude is about their mother and what their relationship was with their mother, how much they had to work at a relationship with their mother, uh, what relationship they were able to uh, forge with their mother is very, very integral in my observation to who a young woman becomes and how she feels about relationships and how she feels about herself. Hmm. And I think it's very true of, of men with their fathers. So given your, obviously, affection for the character of, of Kevin, when you do actually bring him into the main Marvel Universe in a miniseries, what was that, like, did that feel weird? Because you already had the version of Kevin that yes. meant so much to you. It was very weird. It was very weird. And the only handshake agreement that Tom and I had 
is wherever we went left with MC2 Kevin, we would go right with 616 Kevin. And I think it, it gave us a, a different starting point, and I think it gave us a, a, a different character. I, the one thing I would like to do someday before I die is I have an idea for the Thor Corps versus the Thunder Strike Force. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That would be like a cross-dimensional thing where you know, 616 Kevin would come into his apartment in costume one night in the dark and somebody's waiting for him and the lights go up and it's MC2 Kevin. And he says, who the hell are you? He says, uh, this is going to take some explanation, but I'm you and we got a problem, you know, that kind of thing. And do a nice little cross-time, cross-dimensional thing that involves Thor's daughter, Xena, and uh, Dargo, Thor from the future, and all kinds of different versions of the characters and stuff. I'd love to do it at some point. I would love to to put 616 Kevin and uh, MC2 Kevin in the same room. Is it, would you say like is the MC2 Kevin still your Kevin though? Like even though you've done the other one now and you have affection for both? I can't, uh, oh God, yeah, probably. <laughs> I hate to say that, but you're you're giving me Sophie's choice here. So. <laughs> Um, one, one of the listeners had a question about, uh, and you kind of mentioned this much earlier, um, he'd said that he always heard that Thunderstrike was supposed to go 25 issues with a supposed Enchantress piece of a story. What didn't they get to do with that they wish they had? Uh, there was nothing major. There was, there were, before we knew we were canceled, there were, the, the, like, one of the stories that I was looking forward to doing we kind of got to do a version of it in um, in the what if what was it one of one oh seven that was uh, what if Thor took the throne of Asgard but it was basically what if Tom and Ron had not left Thor uh, and it, it, it was it, we wanted to get to a point where Eric actually led the, the Avengers team in a battle and it was going to be with Mangog and we got to touch on it briefly in this what if story but we also got to do Mangog again in the 616 Kevin miniseries so you know a lot of these ideas are sitting on a shelf somewhere and they get you know rejiggered and retooled to be used for uh, for different purposes mm-hmm. um, but yeah there was so there was that but it, yeah there was a B story where the Enchantress was going to create uh we had introduced a character that worked for uh, Jerry Sapristi. His name was Matt Fallers. He was a big, muscular black guy. And he was going to be seduced by the Enchantress and become a one-off version of uh, Blood Axe uh, and play a part in the climax against Seth. And uh, we just, you know, just didn't get around to it. Uh, that was part of one of the B stories that we had to to drop when we were told that we weren't going to get as much page count as we thought we were going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's something that... I mean, I'm still very, very proud of the last, the last several issues of Thunderstrike. I thought 24 
had one hell of an emotional punch. I still can't. I still can't read the last three pages of Thunderstruck 24 without choking up. So. Oh, really? Uh, it was very. Yeah, it was very personal to me. Yeah. Do you still own any of the original Thunderstrike pages? I do. Yeah, some. I, I mean, Thunderstrike was incredibly personal to me in many, 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 many ways. Uh, Marcus Stone is based on, a, on an old friend of mine. Um, and Jackie Lucas is uh, my best, one of my best friends in the entire world, if not my best friend ever. Uh, and the, the character is not only named after her, but looked like her. And uh, the... The, the picture strip that she pins to the flowers on Eric's grave uh, in the final few pages of Thunderstrike 24 is based on a photo strip that exists of me and Jackie. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, there's a lot of very personal connections for me in the entire Thunderstrike strip, but certainly in the last issue. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's our lives you know we spend our lives doing this we do it in a in a room by ourselves for the most part but there there are elements of our lives that can't help but seep into these things and the work becomes very very personal which is which is why it is very hard for me when I see people you know especially in the in the in the culture we have now the social media culture we have now where people will call somebody a hack or make assumptions about how dedicated they are to a job or to a character or something um, one direction or the other you know um, well you know I, I've been called a hack I, I've been you know which I proudly wear that uh, insult because if Salbacema can be called a hack by a bunch of know-nothings then I'm proud to be called a hack right next to him <laughs> um, but there's also you know at one point uh, Jim Ousley uh, was quoted as saying that I was almost obsessed with Spider-Man and that he was concerned that I would commit suicide after I was fired off of Spider-Man, which never was a real concern. But somebody's response to him saying that was, if Friends is that far gone, then he should kill himself and do himself a favor. Oh, my God. And I'm like, holy shit, guys. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? So, you know, but... I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to deny or apologize for the fact that we do get very personally connected to the work we do. You know, I, I always, it's interesting because in, in, in relationships with, with women, I, they will sometimes ask me if it's important to me that they read my stuff or enjoy my stuff. And it's, it's not because I've never been, I've never been in a relationship where anybody did. I, I think my first, my first serious relationship, you know, a young woman I was engaged to briefly, she, I was doing Kesar at the time. She would read Kesar. She enjoyed Kesar. But she never, we never discussed it. She never talked about it, you know, or anything like that. Um, and most of my relationships have been with people that, that didn't really read the work or at least discuss it with me in any real way. So... No, it's not. It's not important. It's. It's not. You know. It's. It's. I think personally, I think that if you read my stuff and knew me, you would get insights into me. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if you were paying attention. 
but I, I, do I think it's intrinsic to knowing me? No, I don't. But it is, it, it, you know, I'm not going to deny that there is a, a very personal aspect to the work that I do. You know, they're very connected. So when people are very cavalier about expressing their opinions, you know, it, it, would, it would behoove them to keep in mind that whoever it is, they spent time with the project that you just decided to piss on in three seconds. Hmm. You know, almost every creative person I know spent some time on that, invested some of themselves in that. And it is a disservice to even the possibility that they put that kind of time into it that you would just take three seconds to say something rude and move on. Yeah. You understand what I mean? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a thing. <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time, and you have to, you have to build a, a callus to it or you'll go nuts. But it, it can be... Uh, we are in an era of, of, of snap reactions, though. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it can be distressing. I actually, you know, early on with the Thunderstrike uh, miniseries, with the Kevin miniseries, what was that, 2010? So it was like 10 years ago. Uh, I was not on Facebook at that point. I would occasionally use my sister's computer and uh, lurk on different message boards and stuff. And uh, yeah, I was shocked at the immediate reaction just from because the solicitations for the books are not written by the creative team hmm. okay they're written by the sales department who sometimes you get the impression didn't actually read the material anyway <laughs> so it doesn't represent what's being done and people are making snap judgments based on the solicitation information and one shot of a cover or something and are mouthing off about it and it it can be distressing because you know it doesn't represent the truth of what you were working on you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. and it, it annoyed me and uh, I anonymously pushed back and said come on I mean <laughs> it's not even worth reading first you know that kind of thing and I got lectured about how with the cost of comics these days, people need to make their choices based on the solicitations and everybody can't afford to read every title, so this is the reality of it, so you're wrong in criticizing them for doing it, and please leave. Wow. <laughs> and I went, okie dokie, and it was an important lesson for me in the way things are done these days, you know? Well, now that you are on Facebook, I do have to say I do appreciate your online presence because you're always putting up works in progress or you're putting up you know recent commissions, and they're always stunning to look at. Well, thank you. I I have fun doing it. I like to remind people I'm alive. Um, <laughs> what are you doing that? It's, it's been a real lesson for me in in the way social media works because there I, I after being up I, I've been. I'm not active, I guess, for like three years now on Facebook. And I have no illusions that it has anything to do with me personally. And But, but it's uh, the other side of that is all that much more humbling, is that you become a part. You know, people, somebody asked me, only partially joking, how do you become a legend? And the only answer I have to that, Adam, is you show up. Hmm. 
because if you're fortunate enough to get on a regular title like Spider-Man or Thor and you show up and contribute the best you can for whatever period of time you're blessed with having on the title something magical happens you become a part of people's personal nostalgia you become a part of their story of a comic book that they bought along with an iced tea and a bag of chips and they were riding their bike to their grandma's and they stopped and read that book under a tree and it was a very happy childhood memory and you get to be a part of that much like what you were just talking about with a next and your grandmother yeah and it, it's a, a, a an amazing opportunity and an amazing blessing that we get to be a part of people's positive happy childhood memories and that's what gets the most likes on on my page i can put up uh, a page of my spider-man run with no story behind it or anything and i will get more hits and more likes from people's own connection to that page or that sequence or that character than if i put up you know my art school portfolio <laughs> you know like because nobody's really interested in the history of ron friends they're interested in the ron friends that connects to them and that's fair that's what it's about you know that's the connection there's a line in one of my all-time favorite movies my favorite year where uh, the lead character says to uh, Peter O'Toole, I can't use you this way. <laughs> and that's, it's not us, man. It's, it's the work we do and the way people are connected to the work. It's not about us. So. Well, I feel like that's probably the best place I could ever leave this, this discussion. It's a great moment to kind of leave it off on and a thing to think about, that's for sure. Well, uh, thank you very much, Adam. I can't tell you how much I enjoy it. It's great therapy for me to talk to you because you're obviously a, an incredibly discerning person of excellent taste. <laughs> Absolutely. Who, who connects to the work, and I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing some of your assessments and your insights and your, your connecting to the things I'm trying to put into it and it's just great fun and uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and uh, I'm hoping DeFalco listens to this thing at one point because he's going to be blown away and excited that you're connecting to the work as much as you do as well because that's that's why we do it you know that's why we sit in a room by ourselves and crank this stuff out <laughs> uh, is we want it to connect with people and uh, it's nice to know that it's working so, absolutely very cool Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you, Adam. You uh, call any time, believe me. I will pick up. <laughs> but, uh, continued good luck to you, and uh, Merry Christmas. Have a great holiday, okay? 